Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, September the 14th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning. No shot, no shot, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So Josh comes to me this morning. I put his business on the street. Josh is 25, soon to be 26. You know what happens at 26? Mm, what happens at 26, Josh? No more mama and papa insurance. Mm, you got to go find your own insurance, don't you? And he's talking about, wow, this coverage sucks, and it costs this much, and this coverage sucks, and it costs that much. I said, <laughs> hey, if you're a young buck not making a lot of money, I don't care how conservative you are, go to healthcare.org. I mean, I'm serious. I hate to say that because it's so fundamentally, it's just, it's, it's at odds with what I fundamentally believe in. But if you're a young buck and you're not making a lot of money, and most young people don't make a lot of money, then there, there's a socialist health care plan out there that redistributes, it collects, it redistributes, and uh, and it takes care of those who don't make a lot of money. Uh, or you can go to some of the other alternative models, some of the uh, indemnity plans and health sharing plans. I mean, I'd encourage you, you know, not to allow the monopoly that exists in South Carolina that I'll leave unnamed to take all your money. Just don't do that. <laughs> um, either go to the um, go to the alternative plans, and I'm talking about Sidecar and some of these others, um, healthcare savings accounts. It's kind of an interesting, uh, yeah. What am I? Uh, there's a model that includes healthcare savings accounts. Um, but but if you enter uh, the free market of insurance, right, Rev? The free market oh, of yeah. insurance, the free the free market. Yeah, you're yeah. going to get screwed. Yeah, you're going to get screwed. Um, anyway, I want to go back to something because I want to move past. You know, should we bust up Walmart and Amazon? We decided yesterday that we didn't know. We also decided, Rev, that we find ourselves in perpetual conflict. That's right. When we begin going down that road. I asked a buddy of mine, excuse me, I stopped by to see a buddy of mine yesterday, and he said, um, so you want to bust up Walmart, do you? What about <laughs> Amazon? And I said, well, I mean, they're as big as Walmart. If we bust one up, let's bust the other up. But but the point he made was, and, and it really goes back to some of the antitrust laws and some of the, um, you know, I mean, th- there was a day in America that if you wanted to buy well, if you didn't want to burn wood to heat, you had to you you were you were forced to do business with Standard Oil. I mean, that's truly a monopoly, right? I mean, if if Stan, and and where Standard Oil got in a lot of problems, I mean, it was smart business, but where they got in problems with the government was they rev. What they did is they not only were the oil company, they were the trucking company, and they owned. Uh, the the gas companies and they own the convenience stores. I mean, they went to convenience stores back then. You see, I mean, it was um it was layered. I mean, they they were vertically integrated. They had control of almost every aspect of that business. They didn't hire a trucking company to move their oil and gas and kerosene and diesel. They did it themselves. So if you were, I mean, unless you decided to be kind of a um an off the grid not Unabomber but an off the grid um somebody and burned wood in your fireplace. You were forced to deal with, with Standard Oil. Same thing with Mobile. Remember, I mean, if you were going to make a phone call, there, there was not three or four or five or six companies. I mean, you were going to if you're going to make a phone call, you're dealing with Mobile. So those were truly monopolies. My, my friend said, you know, if you don't like what Walmart does to communities, or you don't like the fact that Amazon, you know, doesn't have brick and mortar that employ people and sponsor baseball teams, you can still go somewhere else. I mean, there's still a choice you can make. I mean, you can go to a local-owned business. You may have to pay a little more for the product or good, but you have that that option. Um, and he said, you know, so, so I'm probably opposed 
to, to comparing Walmart and Amazon as my bell or standard oil or the, the uh, Carnegie. I mean, th- there was a day in America that if you didn't deal with the Carnegie with us steel, you better build something out of wood. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was that, that they were, that industry was that monopolized by Andrew Carnegie. And the truth, the truth is Amazon and Walmart compete against each other. Yeah. And, and probably make life better for the consumer by them competing against one another. Walmart invested about a billion dollars, uh, in their internet sales. In other words, Walmart decided, um, we're big, they're big, they're getting bigger faster than we're getting bigger. And the reason they're getting bigger faster than we're getting bigger is e-commerce. Simple as that. So Walmart did what you would expect a well-run company to do. They invested in their digital presence. Uh, they encouraged, uh, that they made it easier. I'll give you an example. At our local Walmart, there's kind of a sneaky way I go in and I can park on the side of the building. And, you know, it's kind of a, um, you turn before you get to the Walmart. You go through this little lane, and there's about 20 or 25 parking spots that are kind of out of the way. Not anymore. I mean, those 20 or 25 now are for online, people picking up online orders. I mean, there were four or five spots there reserved for, and, and Rev has said this, I mean, they'll know that you're on the way. They'll tell you to pull into spot five or pot, spot six. Now it's spot 25 or 26. Mm-hmm. So they've taken up the, um, you know, the um, Saturday morning before a football game, I need to run to Walmart to get some stuff for my tailgate, and you can kind of sneak in there and sneak out, not any longer. That entire bank of parking is now online shopping. Uh, and I would imagine if you make an order and, you know, the app sends you say, hey, when you get here, pull into, uh, you know, online pickup spot number 24 or whatever it is. But anyway, a Walmart decided that we can't not participate in e-commerce to the extent some of these other companies, they dabble in e-commerce, right? I mean, they, you know, they, they still hope and pray that you come into their store, but they have a digital presence. Um, Walmart decided to invest directly competitive in nature to Amazon. And they're about the same size companies. I mean, they're both at about 600. I would imagine the revenue varies a little bit, but Rev look yesterday, we're rounding off here, but they're both doing about $600 billion in annual revenue. I mean, their annual sales volume equals about $1.2 trillion between the two. Now, I don't know how big a slice of the pie that is in overall retail. I mean, Target, I guess, would be third, and Target's a couple of hundred billion dollars a year. I think Walmart's about three times as big as, as Target is. But, but, but he said, you know, my buddy, who I, you know, I mean, I, I listen to him. He, he knows, he's a smart guy, knows what he's, what he's talking about. He said, but you might be on to something. If you reach a certain percentage, of revenue or profitability or market share. I don't know what that, that uh, threshold needs to be. And I don't know which one of the variables it needs to be. Does it need to be revenue? Uh, does it need to be margin, you know, profitability? Does it need to be, um, you know, percentage of market share? I don't know. I don't have any idea what, but, but, you know, once you cross that threshold in some measure, you're no longer eligible or your employees are not any longer eligible to participate and some of the government assistance programs. I mean, that that, that might be a reasonable place. And, and even Rev said yesterday, I, I, I could probably get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know that I could get with break up Walmart. And I agree. I mean, I don't think right. I could. I don't think I could get uh, to breaking up Amazon. But I could probably get to a place where, um, and you're still punishing them for being so good. And that's SA. Um, that's not SO. I mean, there's a difference in so good and, <laughs> and so, so good. good. Yeah. <laughs> 
So good's when you really mean it. <laughs> but they are so good. I kind of meant that. This is so damn good. I mean, that's when you really mean it, right? <laughs> right. I'll give you an example. You added I'll give you an example. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. There's a Gamecock. You ready? And that, that Trevor Lawrence was so damn good. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, perfect yeah. example. Um, this quarterback they've got now, is uh, he's got the potential to be such Ooh, a good player. Good. Oh, he doesn't really mean that. That Trevor Lawrence was a day. He's a damn good a player. you got to watch him all over the, the field. Well, that's really a uh, country boy. That's when you really mean it when you say, um, suh, instead of, instead of so. Grammar lesson one uh, for this morning. But, but so, so if we can kind of sort of um, agree that America first policies could, uh, that, that could be an America first policy. I mean, we're talking about, you know, um, we believe that, well, I mean, a lot of the gist of America first is the belief that corporations that amass enormous wealth also amass enormous influence and they unfairly influence the market to their favorite advantage. I mean, do you really believe that Home Depot and Lowe's were worried about closing during the COVID pandemic? Of course not. I mean, do you believe there was anything going to happen to, to Walmart or Amazon? Of course not. And, I mean, they, and the offensive part to that to that scenario is, the, to me, the fact that they are able to have such undue influence into our government because they've got the money and the connections to lobby the officials to, as you say, pull the ladder up. So that's the part that is really offensive to me because well, that's given them, obviously, an advantage, right? But, but the, and the one thing I remember about yesterday's show is toward the end of the show, we have a kind of a rotating audience. We know the people that listen at 6.15 probably aren't listening at 9.15. But the aha moment yesterday for Rev, I mean, I've sat beside him 12 years. I mean, I know when the aha moment is. The aha moment for Rev yesterday is when we talked about how much money Walmart had lobbied congress they had about 10 firms they hired all dc based they spent about six and a half million dollars in lobbying money in dc amazon spent about 21 or 2 million they hired jay carney remember jay carney the bespeckled um, former press secretary for barack obama you remember the guy I mean, he looked I like. A, well, look, I mean, he, he looked the part. I mean, he he's not a, bit, a very memorable guy, but I remember him a little bit nerdy. Once you mentioned his name, I surely remember. Jay him. Carney was the former press secretary for Barack Obama. Jay Carney went to work for Amazon as their chief lobbyist. Jay Carney did not hire ten DC firms that had been there forever. Jay Carney put together his own team, a couple of former members of Congress. Imagine that. Um, a couple of highfalutin DC lawyers. Imagine that. I mean, it's the it's the stable of people you would expect Amazon to go out and hire uh, the best of the best. But you know, Riff's kind of scratching his head, like, why would Amazon spend twenty one million dollars a year in lobbying the government? What is Am? I mean, what is it? I mean, they don't deal with a lot of um, code enforcement. They don't build a bunch of buildings. You know, it's not like they're trying to get a cheaper way to build a building. So can you um, exempt us from some of these planning and zoning? Um, commission hearings, no, but here's what is privacy protection. I mean, that's, that's the, and that was the aha moment for Rev. Mm -hmm. Rev goes, okay, <laughs> now I see where we're headed. Carney and his team of lobbyists went to Washington with a mission to get DOJ and Congress to agree that this interpretation of uh, protection of privacy laws are, are as, they, as they need them to be. I mean, th th there's a lawyer on every corner. You can say, I mean, I've been in these ordeals before, and I get a bit rambunctious in some of these. Well, the contract says, and, you know, you got a business guy on one side, business guy on the other side. They've got a contract. they got a dispute over the contract. Uh, Dave says, well, the contract says such and such. And I said, well, my interpretation of that is, 
you know, something other than such and such. And I always respond with, well, I mean, you know, there are contract lawyers all over the country. I mean, you, you interpret the contract to say this. I interpret the contract to say that. That's why we have contract lawyers on every street corner in America. Somebody will decide at some point in time whose interpretation is fair. So when you read these user agreements, well, you don't read them. That's the secret. <laughs> it's, it's such small print. You don't exactly. read the, the user agreement. But you basically give it authority to the government to listen, or excuse me, to give Amazon or whomever, Google, whomever um, you're signing an agreement with, you've given them the authority to listen to your conversations. And the reason the government's okay with that, I mean, the government didn't wake up one day and say, wow, it'd be a good idea to let Google and Amazon listen to these conversations that Josh, Ken, and Dave have every morning. No, Carney went to Washington with his team of uh, lobbyists and lawyers and said, look, in these, um, in these privacy protection laws, we interpret them to mean this. And we believe our user agreements, our subscriber um, contracts, are within the bounds of what the, uh, the privacy protection laws say. And a member of Congress says, I don't know, uh, Jim, I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, don't, I, I really, I don't, I don't need to get Obama to call you, do I? I mean, it's political leverage. I mean, any Democrat sees Jay Carney walking in the office, they see Barack Obama's press secretary. The last thing a Democrat wants is trouble with Barack Obama. So you kind of agree with Jay Carney. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that interpretation of that privacy protection law or, or that, 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 you know, legal precedent, that probably is the right way. Yeah, you can include that. So they go back. They included the in the contract. Next thing you know, Dave Baker and I are talking about, you know, running shoes. I flip my phone over during the next break, and there's an ad from Amazon. They've got a special on running shoes. I mean, that, that's why Carney's worth. And that's and, happened to all of us. Oh, I mean, we know. You, you don't know how many times. And, and I'm telling you, trust me. Trust me on this. The reason it happens more and more and more and more is Google is spending that much money on lobbying to go convince the powers to be that this is the proper interpretation of privacy or of uh, privacy protection laws. And what is that worth? I'll say this. That's the best 21 million Amazon spent last year. I have no idea what fleet of trucks they bought. I have no idea what sort of insurance, Josh, they offer to their employees. I got no idea where their buildings are. I mean, I know they're Seattle based, but they've got distribution centers and they've got to deal with the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, I get all that. That's the, the logistics of business. But the best $20 million they spent was to properly inter or convince Congress and the DOJ to properly interpret what privacy protection laws are really about. In fact, they probably wrote. I mean, I can't say this for sure, but, but I can say it with a certain degree of uh, assuredness. They probably wrote the privacy protection laws that the country lives under now. I mean, Amazon Carning and his team probably had more seats at that table than anybody when these privacy protection laws were written and the seats that Amazon wasn't sitting in Google was probably um, occupying those with staffers and chief of staffs from, um, from members of Congress and the DOJ. So that's why Amazon, uh, and, and to your point, Rip, is that capitalism? I mean, is that cap, is it capitalism? Is it capitalistic for Amazon who can afford, I mean, they can afford about anything they choose to try and do. They spent $21 million on a former press secretary for a former president and a team of lobbyists and consultants to go to Washington and convince government 
that this is the way privacy protection laws should be applied and enforced. Is that capitalism? What, what is it worth for Amazon to know what you've got on your mind? I mean, what is it? I mean, imagine that, guys. What is it worth for Amazon to know what 330 million people are thinking when they're talking about what they might buy, what they may purchase, what they may not purchase? What is the success rate? If the success rate is one thousandth of 1%, they pay back that 210 million, excuse me, that $21 million with no problem. But you got to believe the success rate is probably two or three or 4%. I would love to see as a business guy, I would love to see what Amazon has calculated as their return on that investment. I mean, it's a line item in their budget. Lobbying, $21 million, Jay Carney and his team. I'd love to know what they believe that $21 million brings in the door. I mean, it starts with a B. I'm sure. I can assure it because knowledge and information right. is unbelievably I mean, value. They're targeting the advertising to somebody who's already expressed an interest in that type of product. I'm going to buy a pair of running shoes. Amazon sends me an ad saying, hey, here's the cheapest model of Nike and New Balance and Brooks and Asics and all these other Under Armour, all these other other shoes. How easy is that for me? Like I said yesterday, brilliant. It's creepy, but it's brilliant. Creepy, brilliant. Is it capitalistic? I mean, that, that's the convergence of government yeah, and the private yeah, sector, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, they figured out a better way to target that advertising. Now, if they had to mess with the laws and they use their influence to change well, the sure laws to make did. it well then, i'm sure they you know did. that's i would argue and i can't prove this i would I don't argue like. that the privacy protection laws in america today have been uh written by the lobbyists at google and amazon i'm willing to say that 80 percent of the privacy protection laws that, that carry the day in america today were probably written by people working for google or working for for amazon and that's not good for business. It's damn good for Amazon. It's unbelievably good for Google, but it's not good for commerce in general across the United States. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Couple of callers. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Hello, Joe. All right. No, Joe. We'll go over to line two. Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, Bert. How are you? Good. Uh, big news. Uh, President Trump's coming back to South Carolina a week from Monday and coming to Somerville to the Sportsman, uh, I guess, boat, boat Arena. And uh, that'll be his fourth trip since January 28th to South Carolina. Uh, I think we all know the affection that President Trump has for the people of South Carolina. But anyway, it's going to be a big day uh, in Somerville. And, you know, the, a lot of people, I hope they're looking at, there's a lot of these cases that some of these uh, lower courts are ruling on, and they're all ruling in President Trump's favor. Uh, he had a ruling yesterday. Another Obama judge ruled in his favor that one of the people that was named in the indictments, uh, uh, he ruled that uh, they cannot use his cell phone records. And that was kind of kind of shocking that he ruled that way. He ruled against uh, Jack Smith and uh, some of the other cases that have come up uh, in the 14th Amendment. Uh, two two last week, two uh, Obama judges in those two cases ruled in Trump's favor. So uh, things are looking up. We're beginning to win some of these lower court cases and stuff. And I do believe that 
of the 91 indictments, there'll be a good many of those indictments that will be tossed out under freedom of information and freedom of speech. And I just think that, uh, you know, President Trump's going to be the candidate. He's getting stronger and stronger every, every single day and uh, looking forward to him coming back to South Carolina again. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I got a good bit of ah, good bit of information we'll get to as the show progresses about Trump and his odds, Biden and his odds. Um, the Democrats are a little bit nervous about this impeachment inquiry. Um, they, they're begin- David, David Ignatius would be, I mean, I, Ignatius is very much, I mean, if you had the quintessential insider, you know, Beltway elitist, I mean, it would be Ignatius. His father, I think, may have worked for the Post, the Washington Post, for years and years and years. And uh, Ignatius wrote a very um, glowing piece about, oh, uh, excuse me, about Biden uh, earlier this week and then said, but he shouldn't run again. I mean, talking about a great president he's been, how, um, you know, how he's just uh, really repaired uh, all the the damage Trump did to the White House and presidency, uh, but he doesn't need to run again. I'm telling you, uh, well, anyway, let's save that for a bit. I mean, I, I don't want to go there yet because I've got a lot of information here on the impeachment inquiry, uh, where we are. Uh, Bird's right. I mean, Trump's never been. Uh, this will be my teaser. Trump's never been in this position in his political career. I mean, he's not quite the odds on favorite. He's my odds on favorite. Uh, that's hunch and instinct. I can't say the data supports that. I can't say the analytics supports that. But my gut tells me that right now, I mean, if there were election tomorrow, Donald Trump would be president of the United States. I've said that for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm more confident today than I've ever been. Um, and, pure, and politically, by the numbers, you think he's in a better position now than he's been? Much better. Ever not, since, not, not, ever mean, since he announced the first time. Take my instinct and put aside. Take my, 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 you know, my, what my gut tells me. Take that out of the equation. Donald Trump this morning wakes up as a more formidable political candidate than he ever has. This morning, he is as strong today as he's ever been by the data and analytic. I mean, you, your gut and instinct is one thing. I mean, he's kind of that guy. I mean, you you know, I, I know what the poll says, but something tells me something. You know, I, there's 40,000 people at this arena. There's 25,000 at that arena. We've gone through that before. Yeah, but the data says, the analytics say, he's behind by six in uh, Ohio. He's behind by four in Michigan. I, I don't know. I don't know that I that I trust that. But if you are someone that trusts the data, if you believe the polling and, and some of the uh, some of the odds makers' theories, Donald Trump wakes up this morning the best position he's ever been to be president, and he's been president before. Wow. But let's go wow. to the phone. Uh, Joe in Hartsville. We'll try again. Joe, you there? Yeah, good morning, guys. I don't know what happened. I could hear y'all, but you couldn't hear me. Maybe it's my phone. I don't know, but... I was saying I'm, you know, I'm not a real smart person, but I stayed at Holiday Inn Express, and I, I tend to dig into stuff that I don't understand. And we got a Walmart in Hartsville, and before Walmart came, we had one little hardware store, and it wasn't very efficient. But Walmart came in, and the little hardware store kind of went by the wayside, but we also got an Ace Hardware, and we got a Lowe's, and then we started getting Bojangles, and then the Zaxby's. Now we got a biscuit bill. But I only see Walmart as a positive thing, but I I tried to dig in to what you were talking about yesterday. 
Yeah, they made six hundred billion dollars uh, total, and I try to look at net and 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 gross profit. Their their net profit was like I think it went down from thirteen nine to eleven something, but it, it usually averages around fourteen billion dollars a year. Now with two point one million employees, that comes out to about five hundred dollars a month. Per employee. Now we keep talking about well they don't pay enough. Well, out of that net profit, they have to pay shareholders, capital improvements, loans, expansion, and on the other side, you've got the government who is bumping up benefits to 150 percent of poverty level. So it's it's hard. You know, I don't feel sympathy for Walmart, but they they employ a lot of people. But at the same time, they're they're having to compete with a government that is playing Santa Claus constantly. You know, at some point, we're we're taking the safety net and turning it into a hammock, and that's got to stop. So, I I remember when. When uh, Apple and Microsoft first started, they didn't have any lobbyists go, and then they started going after them, and all of a sudden they started paying lobbyists, and now they're all okay. So they, I don't think they have a choice but to have lobbyists or else they get put out of business by our wonderful federal government. Y'all have a good day. Thank you. That's called kissing the ring. I mean, Apple and Microsoft decided very early on I mean, these were tech guys, um, especially Steve Jobs. I mean, he would be, uh, you know, he would be rebellious by nature. I mean, Gates would be a little bit different than that, um, I, I think. But I, mean, I don't know this, Rev. You, you give me your opinion. Gates seems to be more of a conformist than Jobs was. I mean, Steve Jobs, the last thing you expected Steve Jobs to do was conform. I mean, his personality was the, you know, kind of a rebel True. with a cause, so to speak. Both were brilliant business people. Um, at the right time, I mean, they, you know, they got in the computer business and technology sector when, you know, there was a lot of growth to be had in that and innovation and technology made people a lot of money from certain places around, around the country. But Joe's right. Microsoft and, and Apple try to be uh, Frank Sinatra and Elvis do it their way. And, um, and next thing you know, they've got some, some legal issues regarding federal legislation. And I mean, there's a deposition of Bill Gates. Uh, when Bill Gates tried to buy, I think it might have been Sun Microsystems. And Gates is deposed, and Gates is across the desk, and he's already a billionaire and, you know, a government lawyer, um, you know, basically impugned his integrity by saying, so when you went after Sun Microsystem, you realized that that was going to offer the consumer fewer options. And he said, yes. I mean, that, that was the, that's what we were trying to do. I mean, there was, you could buy Sun Microsystems software. You could buy Microsoft software. If we bought Sun Microsystem and, and, and brought it under, under the control of our Microsoft, next thing you know, you can't buy that. You got to buy ours. So, yeah, I mean, it was to gain market share. We were making an investment uh, in a company that had a market share, and we're buying their business, so to speak. And th- there's a moment in that deposition, and here's how weird I am. I've watched it. There's a moment in that deposition that Bill Gates looks across the, the table at the lawyer for the government and says, this, this guy's calling me a criminal. I mean, we did what was in our company's best interest. There was no doubt 
that Sun Microsystem at that time was a legitimate rival. And we knew that Microsoft would be far better positioned by making that investment and purchasing Sun Microsystems, but we were buying market share. And, and the government said, but you knew that violated some of the antitrust laws and, you know, uh, so, some of the, uh, I don't know, the Consumer Protection Act and all these other. He said, no, I didn't know that. I mean, I had no idea of that. I just knew that we had X percentage of the market share. They had X percentage. If we could buy that, we put a dollar figure on it. I mean, what is what is Sun Microsystems uh, market share worth? And we overpaid for it. We paid 20% more, but we felt that it was in our company's best interest. And it's just interesting to watch somebody like Gates who just doesn't, what, what do you mean? Well, the next thing you know, Microsoft spending millions of dollars in lobbying. And I think Gates probably went back to Microsoft and said, guys, I know we don't like it, but they're going to harass us to the cows come home if we don't play ball. I mean, if we don't hire lobbyists, go to Washington, be seen, see and be seen, have fundraisers, contribute to candidates, uh, you know, what he basically implied is they would have left us alone on this transaction mm-hmm. with Sun Microsystem mm-hmm. had we had a team of lobbyists we, in Washington. We'd have bought some goodwill with yeah, those folks. If we, if we kiss the ring yeah. and, and go there and, you know, have fundraisers and make contributions, they would have had no problem with us buying Sun Microsystem, but because we didn't, the next thing you know, I'm being deposed and my integrity is being impugned and they're questioning whether we violated the Consumer Protection Act. It's just kind of an interesting um, dynamic. Now, now, Steve Jobs never sat down because the people at Apple strongly discouraged that. They didn't think he would perform so well. <laughs> yeah, you know, sitting in a room with a bunch of government lawyers uh, representing the federal government accusing Apple of X, Y, or Z. But some of the Apple board members said, hey, well, <laughs> Let, let, let's hire these three law co- these three law firms on K Street. It's going to make our life a lot easier uh, because we live in this world of innovation and technology and consumer protection, all of these other um, sorts of things. And they did. Um, and and that's you know I'm not debating, and I, w- I want Joe to under I'm not debating. Uh, well, I guess we are to some degree debating Walmart good or bad. I mean, Walmart's probably a little bit like America on the linear graph. I mean, you know, you got, uh, you know, 10's a, uh, it's, it's all good. Zero, it's all bad. You know, America's somewhere on the, the five side of good. I believe that. I think America genuinely has made the world a better place. But, but we ain't angels, and all of our actions have not been angelic. I mean, you know, we've contributed to some of the, um, the disarray in society around, around the world. Walmart would be similar to that. Um, but they've earned their keep. I mean, they, they run a great business. They've been unbelievably profitable. Um, but but is, it, is it because of, well, I mean, the, the, the fundamental question that we asked yesterday, and I still believe it's the only question that matters to me because I'm on the record. I mean, I don't believe in holographic airplanes, and I don't think Walmart should be busted up. But I do believe once you reach a certain point in the market, you should be excluded from your employees being allowed to participate in some of these government programs. And, and Joe's right. I mean, they've raised some of the thresholds on, you know, who qualifies, what income level. Um, you got people now making, what, 60 or 70 grand a year, 75, 80 grand a year qualifying for some of these, you know, non-means-tested welfare uh, programs. That, that's a, um, and, and I think Rev said yesterday, and J- Josh agrees, it's complicated. I mean, it gets real. It's not complicated if you're a socialist. I mean, it's not. It's easy to say. But but if you're somebody who believes in the free market and the um, the light hand of government, in other words, the free market does its thing unencumbered by 
you know, the, the heavy hand of government, that's the best model. I mean, that's the best way to do it. But, but if Amazon is going to spend $22 million a year lobbying the government in the name of privacy protection, I mean, is that good for you? Is that good for me? Is that good for business? Is that capitalism? I mean, I think the, the, the truest word is, is it fair? I mean, I think the American people have a pretty good understanding. If you said the Consumer Protection Act, Americans, I don't, I don't know what that is. Quantitative easing, I don't, I don't know what that is. Quantitative child, I don't know what that is. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet, I have no idea what that is. I mean, the, the average American has no clue about the three or four or five things I just listed. But if you say what's fair, I mean, every American understands that. And I'll ask you this. If you believe that Amazon, and I do believe this, I think Amazon and Google are largely responsible for creating the privacy protection laws that everybody lives under. If you believe that's fair for Rev and I to have a discussion about running shoes, and the second we go to break, I flip my phone over, there's an Amazon ad for running shoes. Is that an unfair advantage creating by manipulating the marketplace via government policy? Is that fair? I mean, it's obviously legal. I mean, they, they, they work within the bounds of, you know, what is allowed and disallowed to the government. But is that fair to everybody else trying to sell running shoes in America? I don't know the answer to that. But, but I do believe that the American people are able to make a judgment not on the, the um, you know, how much lobbying is too much lobbying. How many fundraisers are too many fundraisers? How much quantitative easing is too much quantitative? I don't think the American people have time to really delve into that. But I think the American people make a fairly surface level of, you know, decision on what's fair or not. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Back to the task at hand. And, and what is the task at hand? You I, tell me. I don't know. I, uh, I will say that. You tell me, Robin. <laughs> okay, okay, Batman. <laughs> Jeez. What does that make me? Uh, Batgirl? Al- Alfred. <laughs> oh, oh, I'll take oh, yeah, that. Alfred. I'll take Alfred. Alfred. <laughs> but you, funny you said Batgirl. I don't know. That's all I could think of. I mean, <laughs> you said the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, the penguin? I don't know. He's yes, a bad sir. guy. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. He's a bad guy. Well, maybe, right. maybe, maybe you like playing the bad guy. I don't know. Uh, but the, the subject matter we've been talking about the last couple of days has been something I didn't think would necessarily be an interesting radio topic, but it is. Right, it, it's an interesting radio topic because it's kind of the convergence of where the economy meets politics. Yeah, and and here's what, and very uh, often, no, I mean, well, well the, when, and I learned something because this privacy protection act that you brought up and talk about again, you we've all kind of seen our smartphones. We say this thing's listening to me because it targets those ads based on something that you talked about when the phone was sitting on the table, and so now you you find out how possibly they got that done well it's 21 million dollars money's the answer now what's, now what's the, the question? question there is no honor and integrity in our government there's not the government that we live under operates under the premise of we'll sell to the highest bidder and if the if, if there's a subcommittee in congress that has been lobbied by amazon and the members of that subcommittee know damn well that you deserve your information to be kept private but somebody's paying for that information to be made available to Amazon or Google or somebody else, they're going to win. That, that's the problem a lot of Americans have. They believe there's a degree of honor and integrity and virtue in our government, and there's not. There's simply not. I mean, you're sitting on a subcommittee, and you just left a fundraiser that Google had for the three Republicans and the four Democrats 
and you've got to decide on, you know, um, Consumer Privacy, Consumer Protection Act or, or you know, uh, privacy protection. And you, you, or, or do you believe that that member of Congress walks into that subcommittee meeting thinking about Dave Baker, Josh, and Ken? Or do they think about the fundraiser they just left? And what they interpret to be reasonable when it comes to public, excuse me, uh, privacy protection. That's the point I'm trying to make. They should be thinking about their constituents. Of course they should. I mean, the government is I mean, it's for the people. They it's are, not they for are the our representatives. Sure. So they know in their heart. When they have a decision to make, when a member of a Congress has a decision to make on a subcommittee where thumbs up, thumbs down, this comes out of committee or it doesn't, and then it goes to subcommittee, committee, and then the full body. Somebody at the subcommittee level knows that that Google and Amazon have no business listening in to a private conversation that Dave Baker and Kennard, but somebody's paying them to allow that to happen. That's my point. The $21 million that Amazon spent on lobbying the government was not to create um, fairness in the economy. I mean, that's not what they're out for. Amazon doesn't work for the government. Amazon is lobbying the government to make sure they have competitive advantages, and the government obliges. The government gives in. The government says, okay, we'll, we'll go along. They don't do it for nothing. That's the point I'm trying to make. Money is the answer. Now, what's the question? Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, guys. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Ken. Um, it's our fault. We're, we're the ones that uh, elected these scumbags, you know, to represent us. But I'll tell you what uh, Walmart is uh, lobbying for. They're lobbying that Congress doesn't rule their monopoly and break them up. But they're also probably lobbying to raise the minimum wage so they'll put more of their competition out of business. I mean, that was their whole model. Uh, you go to these small towns, and I had a friend of mine that had a drugstore said he could buy toothpaste cheaper at Walmart to sell at his drugstore than uh, that he could buy it from his uh, supplier. So, I mean, and that's what Walmart would do. They would pick different items, and they'd have it really low. And, and you know, and so whose fault is it? It was our fault. Because instead of going to my buddy Todd at the um, M&D drugstore in Lake City, to get my toothpaste, well, I went to Walmart. Instead of going to my buddy Rusty to get some kind of uh, thing from the hardware store, you went to Walmart or to get a lawnmower or whatever. So we went to Walmart. You know, instead of going to buy your, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, people owned the department stores, you know, same way probably a ago. So when I was a kid, we went to Ruffins. Well, it was owned by somebody. So instead of going to Ruffins to get my shoes or my jeans or my underwear or whatever, you go to uh, you go to Dagon, you go to Amazon, and then Amazon and they deliver it. And then we get all pissed off at Amazon. Then we get all pissed off at Walmart, and then we get pissed off at Costco. We get pissed off at Lowe's. But then come Saturday morning, guess where we're at? And when it gets time to order your uh, your Gamecock T-shirt, well, you don't go to Rivals, you may because they're a sponsor. You don't go to Rivals. You get online and you, and you get uh, Amazon to drop you off your damn T-shirt. You know, so, I mean, at the end of the day, everything that we are suffering from today, and I mean everything, is our own damn fault because we're a bunch of candy asses, and we won't bag on love, stand on principle, and do the right thing. You know, I mean, I try my damnedest. I don't believe I've walked into a Walmart and, and, and bought anything from a Walmart in maybe 10 years. You know, I just don't like them. 
you know, but I mean, but I, but I will tell you this, I am guilty of uh, my wife saying, hey, you need some more of this or whatever. And next thing you know, you know, there's a damn uh, box sitting at the um, front door, you know what I'm saying? So, but I mean, at some point, if we want to do something about them, you know, then the best way to do it is what we wouldn't do, which is just say, hell, I'm not using Amazon anymore. You know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to go to Walmart anymore. I'm not going to Lowe's. I'm going to go to the local hardware store that my buddy owns. You know, and you know, and I, and I, but we won't do it. So we're sitting there just, you know, dancing in the wind because we keep saying we're, you know, we're bad at Walmart. And then next thing you know, we're going to be at Walmart. So, you know, the hypocritical consumer. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what I do a lot. I mean, I full confession. I will go to a local business. Well, let me back up. I'll go to Amazon. Um, I'll give it. I'll be specific. I need a fire ring at the beach. I mean, I need a fire ring. Uh, I, I go to Agri Supply, Tractor Supply. You know all the uh, you know Schofields, all these others. But but just for just for argument's sake, I go to Amazon. I have a number. I mean, we've talked about this. There, there's a number I'm willing to pay to shop locally. I mean, it, it, it's it's weird because it's not a consistent number. But if the fire ring on Amazon is 59 and is 63 at Schofields, then I'm buying it from Schofields. But what do I do when it's 59 at Amazon and it's 75 at Schofields? It's 81 at the local hardware store. You, you see where I'm headed? I mean, I have an obligation to myself as a consumer. I mean, I, I've got to be, you know, I, I got to be responsible with my money. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's finite. I only have so much of it. And I think we all find ourselves not in a quandary. Um, younger generations, I think Josh's age, they just, for whatever reason, they they like the idea of shopping online. I mean, they just, I don't know if it's um, kind of an antisocial nature of a certain generation, but I've noticed that younger people, I mean, they're, they're not, they just don't walk into local businesses. I mean, if they can get it from Amazon, they're getting it from from Amazon, and and I and I guess we're and, and nobody. Ha- I mean, I don't have the answer to any of these questions, and and I don't know that we're looking for answers to these questions. We're talking about human behavior now. What makes Breeze tick? What makes Dave tick? What makes Ken tick? I mean, I'm sure Rev has similar stories to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you live in a community, you want to see a community do well. You know, for your community to do well, local business has to has to thrive, has to be profitable. But but you go online and you look at Widget X, and Widget X is a hundred dollars. You go to the local hardware store and Widget X is $130. Are you willing to pay 30% more? What if Widget X is $104 or $109? You, you see where I'm headed? I mean, th- th- there's a calculus that all of us put in play in some way, shape, or form, and it's different for everybody. Um, but it's, I mean, it, it's, it's a fundamental situation in the economy that we find ourselves in. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number Thursday morning around 730. We're fortunate to have with us Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Great Television owns WMBF, our NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach. I saw this week, Myrtle Beach, one of the fastest growing areas in America again for about the fourth or fifth consecutive year. I can attest to that. I can attest. There can't be anybody left in Michigan and Ohio. I mean, there just cannot be anybody left. Also, WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia, home of the Fighting Gamecocks. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Also, we also own a station, the Fox station 
in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Hmm. So how about that? Okay, another one of our fast-growing areas in um, in South Carolina. <laughs> That's uh, right. John, John, I'll tell you, South Carolina is an old southern state, but it's very different today. I mean, there's been an infusion of people who didn't grow up here uh, in the proverbial Bible Belt, so to speak, and it's brought a ah, a complexity to our state that we've historically um, not had. I just think America misunderstands some of the new South. And um, and I'm not offended by it. <laughs> I find it endearing some of the uh, some of the values and premises of the old South. But but anyway, the, the South is a different sort of place today than it was even 25 or or 30 years ago. But that's not a topic I'm going to cover um, with you. I want to get the low down and skinny, <laughs> okay. and, and I want to get your take on this. Um, Kevin McCarthy has officially launched an impeachment inquiry that didn't include a floor vote. He's deferring to the committees to do this. As a Republican, and I'll be a partisan for a second, that concerns me. What can you tell us about the inquiry? Well, what I can tell you is probably what you've been talking about uh, since Kevin McCarthy announced that when Congress returned from its August recess, and that was uh, he was forced into this, uh, launching it himself unilaterally. That's within his right, within his purview, within his authority to do that. Uh, but as you point out, he did not seek a floor vote. And I think the reason is pretty obvious. He didn't have the necessary votes to authorize an impeachment inquiry. He didn't have 218 votes. But look, you know, there were members of his own conference uh, who were outwardly threatening him, saying, if you don't do this, if you don't launch this impeachment inquiry, we will withdraw our support for you as the House Speaker. And his hand was forced. And uh, that's the reason why you see what he announced Tuesday morning. Uh, so uh, now for those Republicans who come from swing districts, districts that they won, but also Joe Biden won, uh, they're in a very uncomfortable position because like all politicians, you know this, Ken, your first consideration is your political survival and they're concerned whether this impeachment inquiry will imperil their political survival. John, the, the impeachment inquiry was launched and then the White House subsequently issued a letter and, and as a conservative radio show host, I could say instructing the media on how to cover uh, the impeachment. You're an old hand at this. What do you make of the letter from the uh, from the chief counsel of the White House? Yeah, that was a strange letter. You know, there you can make that the, all of those points without uh, essentially saying uh, it, editorially, this is the way you should cover this particular story. That that was, I think, Bush League in terms of the way they handled that. I have received Ken. So many emails, so many memos from the White House, from the press office, from the White House counsel's office. Since Tuesday morning, I wake up, there's two more uh, emails in my inbox, all focusing on the impeachment inquiry and all trying to make the point, A, this is politically motivated, and B, there's no evidence, they say, in all of these emails that Joe Biden committed any criminal wrongdoing that would warrant an impeachment. I don't know how much an impeachment will have on the election in 2024. It looks like Biden and Trump, but we know the economy will. I mean, there is no doubt about it. And there's kind of a counter narrative. Uh, The the Biden economic team are trying to convince Americans that the economy is good. Everything's fine. The polling shows people aren't buying into that. Biden will speak today on behalf of the economy. What do we expect? Well, that's a really good question. I say that because, you know, over the summer, he's done a few of these speeches. I've traveled with him when he's delivered some of these speeches. I traveled with him uh, to Philadelphia for a speech that he gave on what they call Bidenomics. So another 
uh, speech today on Bidenomics that will take place in Prince George's County, Maryland. It's, it's, a, it's a motorcade right away. It's not like he has to get on Air Force One or anything, but I'll be traveling with uh, President Biden for that. And I'll be listening to see if I hear anything different uh, in this speech that I have heard in other speeches that he's given concerning the U.S. economy. But you're right, Ken. Uh, you know, even though there are some better numbers as it relates to the U.S. economy, uh, the employment numbers are really good. Uh, the fact is inflation has come down quite a bit from where it was last year at this time. Uh, most people aren't feeling it. Uh, and that's problematic, especially when you're running for reelection. So uh, that's the reason why he does have to go out, ask the question yesterday at the briefing, uh, why isn't he making this speech in a red state? Why is he going to blue Maryland to make this speech? And no real answer to that. I mean, obviously, it's going to get covered wherever it is that he goes. But hey, you go to South Carolina and make a speech like that. Not that you're going to wing South Carolina, but it has more of an impact than if you go to Maryland, I think. John, speaking to the economy, there's a weirdness about this potential strike with United Auto Workers. I'm arguing and have argued over the air that it's not just the UAW negotiating with Ford, GM, and other auto manufacturers. It's also they're negotiating with Washington. I mean, this is a potential strike in the middle of a transition that the government is almost fast-tracking to kind of wean us off internal combustion engines onto to EVs. Am I misreading the situation that Washington policy will be more involved in these negotiations or will be a larger factor? That, that would be a better way to say it, a, a larger factor in these negotiations to potentially avoid an auto worker strike. Yeah, I think that, that that's right. It is a factor. Uh, but, you know, as with all uh, labor disputes, uh, always about first and foremost money. Uh, and so if you're not aware of this already, uh, what the UAW is asking for its 150,000 members is a pay raise of 36% over the course of a four-year contract. And the automakers, the big three automakers, have come back individually uh, with pay raises, their counteroffer, anywhere from 9% to 14.5%. So they're really far apart. And, of course, the deadline's tonight. And to me, if you're that far apart with the deadline uh, unless there's an extension of that deadline, I think you're heading for a strike. We'll explain. Last topic I want to touch with you, John. Um, former presidential candidate and current senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, announced yesterday that he's not seeking re-election. Uh, he's kind of a man with no party, to be honest with you. I mean, Romney would be a traditional legacy short of, sort of Republican. It seems the party is kind of um, moving and shifting in a fundamentally different direction. Uh, Romney retiring. What, what is your commentary there? Well, you're right. You know, I, I can't think of another senator uh, currently who's in that same place that Mitt Romney, coming from a red state like Utah, uh, but really speaking his mind independently on a number of issues. And, of course, uh, coming from a red state and being so anti-Trump, who, of course, is the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, you know, I think that it's in any uh, particular conference, whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans, I think it's always good to have that kind of voice. I think Joe Manchin is a good voice for Democrats to have in their party, uh, just like I think that Mitt Romney is a, a good person to have in the Republican Party. You want to have that voice, hear that perspective. You, you know that the majority is going to win the day, but at least you want to hear that perspective as they ultimately decide on various issues, domestic and international issues that affect all of us. John, thank you for your time. A lot of subjects we covered. We'll talk next Thursday.
Thanks so much, Ken. Have a great day. See you, Dave. We'll talk next week for sure. See you later. Thank you very much. John John. Decker, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, joining us as he always does on Thursday morning. We think Drew McKissick will be with us at 8.05 this morning. If, um, I mean, that's, you know, it's live radio. I mean, tentatively scheduled (laughs) to appear. Things happen in real time. That's right. Sometimes scheduled to appear. Scheduled to appear. Uh, We're doing the best we can to honor some of these um, kind of standard features of Wake Up Carolina. (laughs) And, and, And speaking of that, John Decker, always scheduled to appear on Thursdays, and I really enjoy his segments. I mean, sometimes we have a difference of opinion. He is a journalist, he, but to, but for, for us to be able to hear that direct commentary from somebody who is in the White House press pool, who is getting the, the spin emails and documents, you know, they're trying to, I guess, set his narrative as to how he's going to report on this impeachment. What he said this morning made me think that they are – you know, somewhat concerned about this. Well, to be David Ignatius writing the article in the Washington Post gave everybody permission to question whether Biden needs to be the nominee or not. I mean, Ignatius is one of these trendsetters, but he means nothing outside of the Beltway. He means a great deal inside. I mean, if you went to the um, the convenience store in Pamplico and said, "Hey, did you read David Ignatius's article in the Washington Post today?" No, don't know who that is. If you go to the Walmart or Amazon shopper <laughs> or Seinfeld watcher and say, hey, David Ignatius wrote this song. I mean, he basically celebrated the Biden presidency and then said, but he doesn't need to run again. I mean, he, you know, it, it's time to move on. And he's basically arguing that he and Kamala Harris both don't run again. Um, Gavin Newsom's numbers ticked up a bit in some of the betting odds. What Ignatius does is allow that private conversation to now be public. It doesn't mean anything in Cincinnati. It doesn't mean anything in, in Dallas. It doesn't mean anything in Sumter, Orangeburg, or Florence. It means everything inside the Beltway. He is one of the voices that everybody waits on to see. Uh, are we allowed to talk about this or not? Joe Scarborough said yesterday that every Democrat he encounters, which would be everybody in his world, um, <laughs> everybody he meets says privately Joe's Joe's got some issues, man. I mean, there, there, there's some things here that just don't seem right. Now, now I've got a theory, and, and my theory, it's not. I mean, they've always known Joe was dumb. I mean, they've always known he embellishes. Joe Biden is not, you know, a um, a smart guy who tells the truth at every turn. I mean, he's never been that. Um, he's always been uh, a little bit dense. And embellishes, you know, I mean, he got it, excuse me, um, John Kirby got a question yesterday. You know, is this, is President Biden convincing himself these things are true, or is he just losing it? And Kirby, as you would expect Kirby to do, just says, you know, the president's a great man, does great things, and the country's blessed to have him. Um, didn't answer the question, didn't attempt to answer the question. But but my theory is not, it's not that he's too old. I mean, I think he's too old. I think he's too dumb. I think he's a sellout. My, my problem or what, what I believe is happening is they don't think he can beat Trump. I mean, it's all about Trump. In Ignatius's article, I read it, he says, the one thing Joe Biden did that we can't escape is he stopped Trump. That's, that's what this is all about. It's, it's not about the economy. It's not about, you know, the liberal agenda. This is about stopping Donald Trump. And the Democrats believed that the indictments would eventually lead to some sort of, um, you know, uh, political leakage from, from his supporters. It didn't. And, you know, they, they now face this reality of 
Trump's indictments actually made him stronger. Not, not just with Republican-based voters, but independent voters believe that, you know, the majority of this is political motivation. So, so I believe that Ignatius is basically saying um, Joe Biden has always been kind of dumb. He's always been uh, pretty embellishing. He's never been, uh, I mean, we've always wondered, people inside the Beltway wonder how Joe Biden got wealthy. Of course they do. I mean, the rumor is Biden bought a house owned by the DuPonts. I mean, do you really believe that somebody at a cocktail party inside the Beltway in Georgetown didn't say, how'd Joe do that? Just family have money? Oh, no, no, no. He's lunch pail Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, how did he buy a house formerly owned by the DuPonts? Uh, anyway, um, how about another glass of wine? <laughs> you know, how about another uh, plate of caviar? You see, I mean, so, so you know, it's not, th- these aren't newfound phenomenons. We've always known Biden is a bit of a goofball. We've always known he doesn't tell the truth. We've all, he embellishes. I mean, he said he graduated top half as a law class and all these other sorts of things. I believe now Ignatius and his article is, I'm not sure this guy can beat Trump. It's all about Trump. I mean, it's the, it's the Trump derangement syndrome that we talk about. So you're not seeing Biden's too old. Okay, we know that. Biden has dementia. Okay, we know that. Uh, Biden embellishes. Okay, we know that. None of that matters as long as we think he can beat Trump. And now we're beginning to not believe he can beat Donald Trump. And if he can't beat Trump, we got to find somebody who can. We, we got Gavin Newsom, uh, Michelle Obama, uh, I don't Abraham Lincoln. I mean, somebody. We got to find somebody <laughs> to stop Donald Trump from getting elected president. And I said it this morning, and I'll say it again. In all of Trump's time on the political scene, he has never been in a better position than he is today. Never. Now, I have no idea how the indictments work out. I mean, it could be a total flop and failure on his part, and, and Americans could turn against him. I mean, if he has a, uh, you know, a, a lawyer with hair dye running down the side of his face pleading his argument, it's going to be a bad day. But today, as I sit behind this microphone, there has never been a day like today where Donald Trump is as likely to be president as he is right now. Now, now once again, I have no idea what, what the future holds. So somebody can say, well, you said back in such. Yeah, I did. I mean, and I stand by that comment. I mean, the wise guys believe that. A week ago, about a week and a half ago, Biden was at minus 150. Trump was at plus 250. I mean, that's not a big, I mean, if you put $100 down, you got to put $190 down to win 100 on Joe Biden. You put $100 down, you win 240 or 250 on, on Trump. Today, Biden's at plus 215. Trump's at plus 230. It's dead heat. Trump has never been 46%, 47% in some of the mainstream polls. The CBS YouGov poll has Donald Trump at 47%. He's never been north of 44 consistently. He's at 45, 6. In a few polls, he's at 7. Trump ain't getting to 50. Forget that. I mean, Donald Trump is not going to win uh, the majority vote. Never will. A Republican's not going to win the majority vote. Uh, you know, New York, California, uh, big states, uh, Illinois, another big state with a lot of population. Uh, I mean, he's going to win Florida, going to win Ohio, going to win Texas. I mean, it win his share of populated states, but it's nothing like New York and California. So Trump's not going to get to 50%. But, but Trump at 47% is, I, I don't want to say it's a lock, but it's about as damn close as Trump can come to being a lock. Now, a lot can happen. I mean, there's a lot of things that could change once again. If he offers up an argument about the election was stolen during these indictments and trials, 
he's going to lose ground. I mean, if, if he can't do any better than he did last time, some independents are going to say, you got to do better than that. I mean, you've made all these claims. You, you, you've, you've, uh, you've created all this animus toward the government, and that's your explanation? I mean, he's got to do a better job of explaining why he doesn't trust what happened in 2020. He doesn't, use, he doesn't need to use the word rig and stolen. You know, I, I want to explain to the American people why we believe 2020 had some things in it that just don't make any sense. I mean, that's the narrative. That, that's the paragraph. And you got to frame a, um, an intriguing and, and, and com, you know, convincing debate around, around that narrative. But right now, as we sit September 14, Donald Trump's the favorite. I mean, I understand the wise guys have Biden at 215, Trump at 230. But, but I'm telling you, Trump at 47 doesn't lose. He just doesn't. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. We've walked through a lot of different issues this morning. I think we've given all the attention we can to Walmart and Amazon. We ain't for breaking them up, but we do believe we understand how they've gained so much of the market share. They've done a good job of running their business, but they've done a – a really good job, Amazon in particular, of tweaking. You ready? Tweaking the privacy protection laws that allow them to know more about you than you know about them. I'll just leave it there. How about that? So Amazon spending $21 million. Rev kind of looked at me funny when I said they hired Jay Carney. And Jay Carney was the press secretary for Barack Obama. And they, they didn't hire Carney to make sure the tree stands were as good as they were supposed to be or the running shoes were on sale. They hired Carney to go to Washington and make sure Congress and the DOJ were properly interpreting some of the Consumer Protection Act and some of the uh, privacy protection laws. And, and I would argue, and I'll stand by this comment, that the majority of privacy protection laws on the books today were at least touched by Google and Amazon. I, I just kind of sort of know how that world works, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if they may have written <laughs> some of the privacy protection laws in our nation's capital. And the results capital. are you and, can get targeted yeah. advertising the, right the, on your phone. The result is the Rev and I have a conversation about running shoes. We take a break. I flip my phone over and Amazon's offering me 20% off running shoes. Um, that's the $21 million that they spent to make sure government, G-U-B-M-E-N-T, works the way um, they needed to work. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, is with us this morning, Drew. Drew, is that? Good morning, sir. How are you? Yeah, very good. How are you, sir? I am doing well. So, so Drew, let, let, I'm, I'm going to go down this road with you for a second. Yeah. And, and it's not, I'm not asking you to tell me the goods and bads of lobbying, but, but companies have the right to petition that their government. We're making an argument on this show. We're trying to make, we're not making an argument. We're having a debate and a discussion about the, um, the convergence of what I'll call traditional conservatism and America first. I have the unofficial responsibility, and I like that, of, um, you know, <laughs> kind of throwing things out there and letting people have at it as they choose. You've got to cobble together these factions that have, um, I don't know, fundamental disagreements would be an overstatement, but, but we were debating, you know, um, the conservative says nothing to see here with Walmart and Amazon. The America Firster says, I don't know, man, is it good that two companies have $1.2 trillion worth of sales between them. Is, is that something our party is trying to address and understand and, and work through intellectually and philosophically? Well, I guess, you know, part, part of it goes to uh, scale. You know, as things get so much bigger, um, 
you know, sometimes you run into issues you didn't anticipate. Um, and, of course, you can say that for the whole, you know, boom in the tech sector over the last, you know, how many years and, you know, different businesses that get created and the way that they make money changes and then uh, massive, uh, you know, data uh, becomes possible on, you know, infinite number of consumers and so forth. And that creates a business and then it gets into the stuff that you just talked about. And full disclosure, I, I own some stock in Amazon. You know, I, I was actually uh, uh, lucky enough because I didn't really know what I was doing to buy some like back in the early 2000s. I wish I had bought a whole lot more since then, but I didn't. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, I mean, it, it definitely touches on, um, uh, you know, how we think about, let's say, laws concerning, you know, monopolies and, uh, you know, things of that nature. Uh, you know, we can't be, and again, I'll speak here for myself, you know, what, what I would call an, uh, uh, completely and totally uh, laissez-faire free market in the sense of, you know, there does have to be regulations to protect people, to protect, you know, the country and business and so forth. And the argument is always, oh, where are the guardrails? You know, so we're, how far over to this side do we push them? How far to this side? How far is too far? Uh, but you're exactly right in the sense that, you know, those companies are definitely, um, you know, working to get involved. And they, the tech companies found that out, you know, about 10, 15 years ago that as they started to boom and boom and boom. Uh, and then they figured out, hey, uh, you know, these guys over in Washington who know nothing about tech whatsoever are going to be making regulations about what we do. We, we need to hire some lobbyists. Um, now, and I'll say in defense of companies and not just those guys. Yeah, but the bigger government gets. So you got well, on one side you got big business, but on the other side you got side you got big government. The bigger government gets, the more pretty much everybody in business has an interest in protecting themselves from that government. So, you know, when you go to Washington DC today, you know, I go up there a couple of times a month, you know, get off the plane at Reagan Airport and I can look along, you know, the other side of Potomac over in DC and what do you see? Construction cranes everywhere. I mean, the construction crane might as well be the official emblem of Washington, D.C. Uh, constantly building. Building what? Building apartments. For who? For people who work in government. Or lobbyists. For people who are working to protect people from government or whatever. It's just the industry. And the bigger government gets, the more of an issue that is for everybody. Not just for, you know, individuals in terms of our liberties and stuff, but in terms of, you know, businesses and their ability to do business. Now, sometimes though, what happens is you run into, uh, and this comes with the bigger government gets. When big business gets in bed with big government, then you got a big problem. Uh, and you run into what's known as crony capitalism, you know, where you will have folks uh, who have some influence in government getting the government to write regulations of their business in such a way that it hurts their competitors. Uh, and, you know, we, we see instances of that all the time. I know you've seen that in your experience. Um, and so that's a problem. You know, we have, on the one hand, we've got government getting bigger, which we as conservatives don't want it to. Uh, we should oppose. You know, we believe in limited government. Uh, and, you know, more competition would then help take care of too many businesses getting too big, you know. Uh, so it's one thing for them to protect themselves from government. It's another thing for them to use the power of government to inhibit their competition. And that's something you have to watch out for. But as you, you asked the question of, okay, well, how do we deal with that within, within a political coalition? And, and remember, this is a coalition of you know, not just individuals, but also people who work in business, people who own businesses, big businesses, medium-sized businesses, small businesses. Uh, and, you know, we've got to balance that. We 
we've got to be true to the fact that, you know, nobody should be able to use government to inhibit their competition. Uh, you know, government should protect our personal liberties. But, you know, we also need to allow businesses to innovate. Would you agree, Drew? I want to, last question on this subject. Would you agree that our party, and I'm talking, I mean, I, I interact with a lot of Republicans. Some can write checks, some vote and carry people to the poll. I mean, there are different levels of, you know, assistance they give to the Republican cause. But, but I've yeah. noticed amongst a lot of folks, they never want to lose being pro-business. I mean, you know, Republicans want to be for the private sector, empowering uh, prosperity and job creation and growth in, in business. Right. But, but there is a sentiment in our party now, to your point, that questions if we've not treated capitalism as somewhat of an idol instead of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an economic theory. And, and, and they are a little bit more anti-big business than I've ever um, sensed them to be. Is, is that a fair characterization? Well, I, it, it is fair. And, and I think that part of that goes back to what I just you know, described to a degree is the, the, the level to which big businesses end up getting in bed with big government using the power of big government to essentially insulate themselves from competition to cement their market share, uh, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, to the detriment of the little guy, you know, maybe the little guy who's out there trying to start a business to get into this space now. Uh, and say, for instance, the, the degree to which we saw uh, big tech thinking especially about social media right now, get in bed with big government here in the last four to six years. Uh, you know, the little guy out there has seen that, you know, the common everyday man out there has seen that and then begins to resent big businesses. And, you know, the risk becomes that you paint them all with the same brush, you know, well, that's not fair necessarily. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is something that people have a concern about. I think, you know, again, the danger is, you know, when businesses get married to big government, because there are plenty of big businesses out there that you and I have seen fail, you know, over you know, the decades. Uh, big ones, you know, they just have either, you know, they have competition that comes along and upends the way that uh, things are done or bad management or, you know, bad business strategy and, you know, time passes them up. Think about Blockbuster, for instance, you know. Um, so, but when they get insulated from competition, that's a problem. And then that then loses support, I think, of a lot of folks, uh, at, common folks that you would think of at the grassroots level, so to speak. I want to shift gears. Uh, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Party, is with us this morning. Um, something instinctive and, and kind of gut-driven happened to me a couple of weeks ago, and it's been supported by some of the data and analytics. And now, and I've got an opinion, want to get yours, and this is, um, this is less analytical and more opinionated um, David Ignatius of the Washington Post wrote an article where he congratulated the president for all the spectacular accomplishments, but you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. run again, uh, you know, and, um, right. and, and I, I believe this, Drew, I want to get your take. You'd be more uh, informed than I. I believe that they've always known Biden's too old. They've always known he embellishes. They've always known mm-hmm. that, that he's never been, you know, one of the deep thinkers of the liberal cause, but they, they always thought he could beat Trump. And, I, and I'm operating under the premise that Trump is our nominee. Who knows? we got a primary. Anything can happen. You've said that, and, and, I, and I'll agree with you there. Anything can happen. So, so I'm, I'm asking this question based on not the inevitability, but the likelihood that Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party. Is what's happening on the Democrat side, um, I, I guess Ignatius is giving Washington proper permission 
to decide whether Biden's the nominee or not. How, as a strategist for the Republican Party, do you address when liberal journalists begin giving people permission to say this guy may not be the best guy to beat the Republican nominee, arguing that that's more than likely going to be Donald Trump? What do you make of that? Well, I think it's almost like uh, here in the last couple of weeks, the bat signal has gone up, you know, in the media uh, that, you know, hey, we might want to look at this. Or, hey, it's OK to question this now. I mean, from them being more likely uh, to run stories about some of his foibles at the microphone and overseas and his comments than they used to be, you know, even six months to a year ago, uh, you know, uh, to um, issues of, uh, you know, related to Hunter Biden and the laptop and the things that are spinning off from that, uh, to the point where, you know, yesterday or day before yesterday, the White House, you know, sends a memo out to, you know, the mainstream media saying, well, this is how you ought to cover this impeachment inquiry stuff. Uh, you know, which is uh, some folks in the liberal media actually took umbrage at, you know, well, hey, you know, you're supposed to do that behind closed doors. You know, don't tell, don't put it out in public and let folks know that we take direction from you. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's definitely, I think they're definitely in a situation now, you know, let's say the Democrat Party at large, which includes a lot of the media, uh, just liberalism in general and the Democrat Party being their vehicle, that he is a flawed candidate. He was their best shot uh, last time. They have thought until recently he's their best shot this time and really in a lot of ways they're still caught behind the eight ball because you know it's kind of like you know they, they thought they're thinking through the 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 issue of hey he might not be our best shot on the ballot because of the way he's advancing you know downward if you will but it's like they can't get to the next step before they take that step of who should it be and how do we get there because you're running against real problems now, you know, filing deadlines for primaries are going to be coming up. Uh, and so if you get past that and if you get close to a convention, what do you do if he steps aside? You know, well, uh, I mean, Kamala's got worse numbers than he does. You know, what are you going to do? Bring in Gavin Newsom, you know, over you know, the, the white female. You're going to sell uh, uh, another white guy, you know, to the Democrat base. Well, that's going to be a problem, much less selling, trying to sell California to the rest of the nation. Um, yeah, who else are we looking at? Who's on deck? And they really don't have that question answered. So it's kind of like they're, they're, they're coming to grips with the fact that they've created a problem for themselves. Uh, not to mention the fact that he's got potential legal trouble now. I mean, there is a real house inquiry. And I'll say the things that I've seen coming out of this house inquiry just in the last couple of, you know, since they've been talking about it, a few weeks, uh, and stuff from the whistleblowers. You've got more hard evidence than they ever dreamed about thinking about having against Donald Trump when it was all Russia, 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 and the you know, first impeachment of uh, Trump. They've got a real problem. And when you've lost Dave Ignatius in the opinion page of the Washington Post and you're a sitting Democrat, you've got a problem. Drew, last question. I've argued yesterday and today that Trump is in the best position he's ever been. I'm not, once again, I'm not willing to use the word inevitable. Uh, we know what effect the indictments have. We have no idea what a trial may have, what kind of optics or, or narrative will be created from there. But I've never seen Trump polling 46 in a, in a CBS YouGov poll. I've never seen the odds makers have Trump at nearly a dead heat with Joe Biden. Uh, that's not anecdotal. I mean, that is a bit analytical and data-driven. It looks to me, and once again, who knows what happens in a primary. But today, as I speak, the snapshot looks like Trump is in the best position politically he's ever been in, except the day he got inaugurated president of the United States. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, I think you can attribute a lot of what you're seeing in polls to a lot of what we've been seeing in the news. You know, uh, over over time, you, you watch enough of these things, presidential nomination contests, and then even presidential you know, elections, general election campaigns. More often than, than, than we really think, and I'd say more often than the candidates themselves wish, uh, these things are driven by events. You know, events happen, how candidates respond to the events, how opposition responds, how voters respond to the events, how it changes the conversation or narrative. And a lot of those things are just out of the control of different campaigns. Um, what events have we been looking at lately? multiple indictments. You know, Democrats essentially trying to weaponize the judiciary against one particular candidate on our side of the aisle, you know, that some may see as the most inevitable candidate to run against their Democrat candidate. So it's like, you know, again, all the folks, the Democrats around the country, whether they're local prosecutors or folks in the DOJ up in Washington, D.C., have been working to weaponize the judiciary in each of these indictments. And we're talking about four different cases now. Each one generates press, dominates headlines. Uh, more average uh, folks out there seeing this as a problem. Candidates responding to that. Voters responding to that. Uh, and it, it dominates airtime. Uh, and so, again, I would say you've got big events there that are dominating the campaign timeline now. Uh, and I think that uh, has a lot to do with uh, the numbers you're talking about. Well explained. Drew, appreciate your time this morning. And um, hopefully, yes, if sir. you're not traveling, we can join uh, We can join back together next Thursday morning. Yes, sir. Y'all have a great one now. Do the same. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National uh, Republican Party. Kind of, kind of the takeaway for me is the, um, I don't want to say the marriage, um, the getting together of big business and big government is probably not good for anybody except folks who believe in the arrangement big government creates with with big business. Uh, there are far more losers than winners when big government gets in bed with big business. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We're talking about President Biden's input impeachment inquiry. Um, we've heard from John Decker. We've heard from from Drew McKissick. Uh, we're going to hear now from Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern in our nation's capital about the. Uh, I guess the latest reaction to the launching or initiating of an impeachment inquiry, Jared, good morning. How are you, sir? I am well. Good morning to you. So, so what is the latest when it comes to the, um, the impeachment inquiry that was not voted on by the full body, but rather by the, the speaker allowing, I think, three committees to do the necessary work? Yeah, did it the same way that Speaker Pelosi did a few years back during the first impeachment of uh, President Trump, right? Um, and, you know, we, we heard from the president directly about this for the first time last night. He was at a fundraiser, um, a, they call it a campaign reception, uh, in, a, in a suburban Virginia just outside of D.C. I happened to be in the room because I was the uh, designated radio reporter uh, traveling with the president uh, yesterday. And so uh, he did at the end of what were pretty standard fundraising remarks say, all right, let me say something about impeachment. We all kind of perked up. Um, and, and what he said was, you know, Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene at first just wanted to impeach him. And he said, now, best I can tell, they want to impeach me because they want to shut down the government, but said that uh, as many questions as he gets about the aspect of impeachment, uh, he is not focused on it, uh, telling those supporters instead he's dealing with issues that affect 
the American people. Of course, earlier in the day yesterday, the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, called the inquiry baseless and a political stunt to appease uh, far-right members of the Republican conference like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. They love using the name Marjorie Taylor Taylor Greene. <laughs> listen, they, they connect her to a lot of things. Um, it's clear that they think that uh, she holds a lot of sway over the uh, Republican conference. She's certainly um, a lightning rod in the same way that Republicans uh, kind of connected, um, you know, any number of, you know, <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to like everything, right? Um, remember, these are individual members of Congress that, that have constituencies that make up a pretty small population of the overall country. But, you know, you get these members that are kind of out front, out there, uh, kind of brands in and of themselves, right? And then it becomes easy for the other side, the opposition, to kind of target them in the same way that you know, Republicans have been successful doing that with members of uh, the Democratic Party. You're now seeing Democrats kind of try and connect uh, the entire Republican brand to individual members of the Republican Party. Yeah, down south we'd call her a mess. Is uh, is, is what we? She's a mess. <laughs> is about uh, is about what we've been. But 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 Jared, it, it doesn't it doesn't discount the reality. I mean, there, there's still an impeachment yeah. inquiry. I mean, I told a buddy sure. of mine the other day, impeachment's the new censure. You know, we've we've just kind of normalized. Listen, yeah, no, listen. And the the other thing that sort of, and to that point, you know, I get asked a lot, what's an impeachable offense? Well, it's whatever the House of Representatives says is an impeachable offense, right? Um, That's the standard. High crimes and misdemeanors is kind of loosely defined in the kind. There are some 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 direct things that that are noted in their trees and other things, right? But a high crime and misdemeanor, listen, that's not a, a criminal standard, right? It's kind of does the House of Representatives believe that actions have been done by the president uh, that undermine the president's ability to to hold office? Um, that has meant in the past um, lying to Congress, obstructing justice, um, inciting an insurrection, uh, the first president to face an impeachment was uh, Andrew Johnson. They accused him of uh, violating federal law by removing uh, cabinet members. Um, you know, so it's kind of like whatever that standard is, is very um, in the moment, right? There's not a, and I think that's by design, right? There's probably a reason that, that the founders did not list like everything that can be impeachable because then if somebody does something that's wrong and it's not listed it's like well can we impeach them right but um you know the the standard is whatever the house wants it to be and then it's the the job of the house of representatives to convince the senate um that this rises to the level of removal which is a standard that has never been met in the history uh, of our country that is very well explained evan thank you for us jared evan jared thank you for thank you for Yeah, we, we had him on yesterday. Cat, yeah. <laughs> They've been one day, Jared the next. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate <laughs> your time. Uh, and and let's, let's do this for a second. Let's, um, I mean, forget the official news accounting. Let's do this. Let's take two particular um, uh, issues regarding impeachment, and let's see what has happened uh, since the beginning to now. So who remembers the laptop is false? I mean, it's fake. I'm sorry. It's fake. The laptop is fake. Uh, it's probably it's it, it, it's probably at least possibly Russian disinformation. I mean, that was the beginning. When we found about the laptop, the laptop is fake. It's possible, probable Russia disinformation. Today, Hunter Biden is suing for invasion of privacy. 
But that, that's that's how far we've moved from the original um, comment or narrative of the White House. The the laptop is fake. It's probably Russia disinformation. Um, I mean, if you're suing somebody for invasion of privacy, you're probably accepting ownership of the laptop. So that's quite seem. the hurdle. Uh, now a lot have happened. I didn't I didn't want to go through you know step A B C D E F and G where we were at the beginning where we are today. Hunter Biden is suing for invasion of privacy. So he's accepting that the laptop is not fake. It's indeed mine. It was not Russia disinformation. Let's take another um, nugget of information that I think is important, um, and that would be the White House talking points. At the beginning, he never discussed business with his son. Never discussed business with his son. That um, evolved into never in business with his son. Remember moving the goalpost from never discuss business with his son, never in business with his son. Yesterday, there is no evidence to link President Biden to his son. So we're not on the football field anymore. We've moved the goalpost to the end zone over the uh, the grandstands. We're in the parking lot. I mean, we're in the fairgrounds parking lot at Williams Bryce. I mean, that's where the goalposts are now. We went from um, never discuss business to never in business to there is no evidence to link President Biden to his son. So let's address the evidence to link President Biden to his son. You ready? We got three business partners with sworn affidavits. We've got an FBI informant that the government said was highly credible. I didn't say that. The government said an FBI informant that is highly credible. We have an IRS whistleblower who appeared before Congress, an FBI whistleblower who has appeared before Congress. We have bank records. We have shell companies. We have wire transfers. We have emails. We have text. We have fake names. We have pseudonyms. I mean, we have a guy who said, no, you know, my name is um, uh, Art Vandelay. <laughs> yeah, Art Vandelay <laughs> is who I am. I'm not Joe Biden. I'm Art Vandelay, a world-renowned architect, I might add, um, for the Seinfeld Watcher. And that may be a way to kind of bring in the Seinfeld Watcher into this. His name was George Costanza, not Art Vandelay. <laughs> His name is Joe Biden, not Robert Wilson. Uh, Peters. So, Peters. So, so let's go through that. There is no, once again, um, never discussed business. Eh, maybe they did, but he was never in business with his son. Mm, maybe he was, but there's no evidence to link Joe Biden to his son. And I don't know how much evidence there is, and I have no idea how they will present this evidence, but we know for a fact. But it's not rumor milling. This is not a White House memo. There have been three business partners under oath say that Joe Biden's the big guy. Uh, From Vinny Barbarino to Devin Archer. And there's one more. I can't think of his name. Uh, A highly credible FBI informant. An FBI whistleblower. An IRS whistleblower. A couple of IRS whistleblowers, matter of fact. Um, Bank records. I think there are 15 to 20 shale companies. There have been wire transfers from foreign governments into these shale companies. Where did the money go? We don't know that yet. I mean, that'd be compelling, interesting information. We've got a series of emails. We've got letters. We've got text. We've got Art Vandelay on the list. But there's no evidence. Really? I mean, is there no evidence? What is that? I mean, what is all that? I tell you what that does to you and I. It puts our ass in jail. That's exactly what it does. If there's that much corroborating circumstantial evidence, you there's no way to avoid an investigation. Now, now we know what's going to happen. 
They'll squeak an impeachment vote through the House. There will be an enormous amount of information that the press will try to spin and manipulate and distort. And then the Senate will say nothing to see here because they have the majority. But but how much damage? So you're going to have mutual damaging storylines. You've got the, the Biden impeachment inquiry, and you've got the Trump trials, so to speak. I mean, that's what the presidency will be will be decided on. But for someone to say there is no evidence, and I understand the black lesbians pay to say what the black lesbian says. I get that. I mean, she doesn't have a right to tell the truth. She has a right to tell the people who pay her every, you know, other week or whenever. Well, I don't know where their, their pay periods are in Washington. But um, but KJP said yesterday there's no evidence to link President Biden to his son. Now, that's the same lady that said a year ago never discussed business with his son. So we've just, I mean, we, we've not just moved the goalposts, guys. We had to build a new field. And and, and to, to suggest there's no evidence, forget the letter from the White House counsel sent to the media saying, hey, there's this story, and here's how we think you should cover it. The, I think Drew made an interesting point. They normally do that at cocktail parties. But they normally do that over a, a glass of Pinot Grigio. They don't normally send a letter made available to the public saying, hey, there's this story, this bad news coming down the pike that could hurt the president. Here's how we'd like to see you cover that. I mean, once again, that's normally off the record. And I mean, that, you know, CNN's not shamed. I mean, CNN actually said a lot of misinformation here. I mean, CNN got the memo and they, you know, obligated themselves to follow what the White House um, said do. And that's just kind of where we are today. But when KJP says there is no evidence, there's a, a plethora of evidence. There's an abundance of evidence from three business partners under oath, sworn affidavits, and publicly testifying to Art Vandelay and all uh, in between. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. You're on. Hey, good morning, Ken. Hey, Jeff. Hey. Um, so uh, just just real quick, um, story of the laptop. Um so you heard people. Hey Jeff, can we do laptop? this? Can we do this? Hey, in, instead of sure you can. Yeah. yeah, and, and I'm yeah. sorry. Let's let's take a break. Come back, and we'll yeah. have a good bit of time after this break sure. and before the hard break at the top of the hour. Back in just a couple of minutes. I tell you, it doesn't. I mean, it takes a lot to make me feel slighted, but I do feel a bit slighted. The White House didn't send us the memo. I know, telling us how to cover the story. <laughs> let's go to the phone, <laughs> like like we would have listened to them. <laughs> let's go to the phone. Here's uh, Jeff. You still there? Yes, sir. Have at it. All right. So uh, a couple things. Um, Nobody said the laptop wasn't real. What they're saying is that it's been modified. I'm sure you've probably seen the interview that uh, Isaacs, the shop owner, had given to Newsmax. Are you familiar with it? I am not. Okay. So when he had the hard drive and he had the actual computer before he turned it over to the FBI, it had X amount of data on it. On Newsmax, you can look up the interview. He says, what's being passed around now has more information than the computer I had. So the copy that was given to Rudy Giuliani and where other information came from, there's been data added to the laptop from the shop owner who turned it over to the FBI. You can look that up. Okay. there's a video of him saying that the data that is on the laptop that's being passed around that hunter biden just made a request sued the owner 
there'll be a trial in open court with discovery. We'll get to the bottom of this, don't you think? I would hope so. And, and I want to reiterate, I'm not worried about it. Hunter Biden can smoke all the crack and, and sleep with all the prostitutes. And I mean, I, I could care less. He is a degenerate. And, and he, he can act just like Donald Trump. Well, I mean, idiot, but we're not talking about Trump. I mean, we're not launching an impeachment right. inquiry into Donald Trump. We're trying to figure out how Joe Biden got rich. I mean, and to me, fundamentally, that's the question that I'm interested in. How did Joe Biden get rich? That, that's all I so, want to know. If, if somebody can explain to me. I mean, I understand how Hunter Biden got rich now. I mean, it, it's easy to understand. Yeah. I mean, it, he got paid by energy companies and foreign agents to to do whatever it is he chose to do. You, you say everybody in Washington peddles influence. Uh, fine, good enough. I want to know yeah, how Joe Biden got brand. unbelievably wealthy being in the U.S. Senate for the last 40 years. Right. He he, he did. I mean, get, have you looked at uh, Bobert's? Uh, when I'm talking about Bobert, Jeff, I mean, we're talking know, about I'm, Joe Biden. No, no, no. Joe uh, Biden is the president. Joe Biden has been a senator since the mid-70s. Joe Biden bought a house in the late 90s that was owned by the DuPonts. I mean, I, I want to know how Joe Biden was able to do that. He's the greatest financial planner in the history of mankind, or he's a crook, and my money's on the latter. <laughs> so— so you don't believe that polit- every politician that gains wealth is a crook? I, I'm not talking about every po- I don't that's care about what, what about saying. ism. I mean, that, that's your story because you can't defend all the evidence that seems oh, to no. convince a lot of Americans. 61% of Americans believe that Joe Biden's corrupt. Okay, listen. That, and, that's, and once that's again, when you say that. there's no evidence, there's a great abundance of evidence. Let's find out if they're telling the truth in this impeachment inquiry. Let's get to the bottom of the, the three business partners, the FBI informant, the IRS whistleblower, the FBI okay, whistleblower, so the bank records, the shell companies, the wire let's, transfers, the emails, the texts, Art Vandalay. I mean, let's find <laughs> out uh, collectively w- what is all that. I mean, of course you can talk about it. Okay. So what did Devin Archer say? I'm not, you're not under asking oath. questions. You're certainly in, you're, well, you're more than you, okay, the floor Devin is Archer, yours. You, you can, you can defend all of those, but, but to suggest there's no evidence is just untrue. Devin Archer, under oath, said never once did Joe Biden discuss business. Do you believe him then? I don't have any idea who to believe. Well, he said it under oath. But, but isn't that the intent of an impeachment? Let's find out who's telling the truth and who's not. Okay. I mean, let, let's subpoena records. Let's subpoena individuals. Let's get people uh, to testify under oath, and let's find out if Joe Biden is lying or not. Fundamentally, that's the only is when Joe Biden said, "Now to begin with, and and you'll have to agree with this." I mean, I think you will. Never discuss business was the company line, and then it and then it moved and never in business with his son. And yesterday, she said, KJP said, there is no evidence to link President Biden to his son. There's a lot of evidence. Can it be corroborated? Can it be substantiated? Can it okay. be proven to be true? Let's let's do the work necessary to find out who's telling the truth. Who's the best person? Who's who's the best person to answer that question? Under I'll, oath, I would imagine Joe Biden. Oh well, under oath, wouldn't it be Hunter Biden? But see, I'm not interested. Yeah, I mean, Hunter Biden because would obviously James be a part Comer, of this because James Comer will not test subpoena and put. Hunter Biden under oath. But I don't think Comer calls all the shots now. I mean, I don't know what Comer's done or what he hadn't done. The the, the point I'm making, and I think we agree here. Trump called them. Trump talked to the leadership of the House 
the day they announced this inquiry. So you don't believe that Joe Biden has ever taken money from foreign governments? What do you do? I believe. Joe I mean, that, that's a simple question. Do no. you believe that Joe you Biden can, is telling I, the I, truth? I'm saying it. No, but no. but do you believe that Joe Biden is telling the truth when he says, "I have never received any money that my son got paid from Barisma from some of these foreign energy companies." You believe Joe Biden's telling the truth? Look, his tax returns are wide open. You can see him for the last 25 years. See, and I the don't believe I'm he's telling the truth. No. And but, that's fine. You, you you don't believe it. That's true. So there let's have no let's have an inquiry. There is no evidence of that. His tax returns are open. He didn't sue and block his tax returns to the Supreme Court. He didn't evade any investigation, IRS investigations into his tax. So returns. how did he get rich, Jeff? Look. They they all have book deals. They all he didn't have a book deal in the eighties. He didn't have a book deal in the nineties. He was a doofus right. of a and senator he, from Delaware. And, and 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 again, is is there insider trading in Washington? We know there is. Jeff, we got a hard break. Top of the hour can't float it. Back in a few eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Last hour of this Thursday morning. So I don't want to put Jeff's uh, words in Jeff's mouth because he's not on the phone now to defend himself. But it sounds to me like he's saying that Biden did nothing wrong, doesn't believe. the. You had a pretty good list of evidence there, but he doesn't believe that the uh, the whistleblowers and the people with affidavits and, and testimony under oath that they are telling the truth. You couldn't put all this evidence in the back seat. <laughs> I mean, there's, the there's a lot of evidence here. And I want to say this. I've never... <laughs> I don't think anybody could accuse me of being a know-it-all. I mean, you could accuse me uh, of a lot of things, and, and I'm guilty as charged on many, many, many fronts. Um, and it's hard for me because I do know everything. And, and not being a know-it-all, oh, yeah. knowing everything, I mean, that, that's a human condition complication yeah, that's, that's that I struggle there. with. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the fundamental disagreement Jeff and I have, well, I mean, other than who should be the president and, you know, how the world should run, I mean, I think we have – fundamental disagreements there. I don't know if these business partners are telling the truth. Jeff doesn't either. I don't know if the FBI informant is trustworthy or not. Jeff doesn't either. I don't know if the IRS whistleblowers are motivated by doing the right thing, if altruism is in their heart, or if they're trying to score. So I don't have any idea um, what what the FBI whistleblowers, the bank records, um, the, the shale companies. We know that people have appeared under oath. And they've said things that incriminate Joe Biden, or potentially, there you go, potentially incriminate Joe Biden. But I don't know who's telling the truth and who isn't. Jeff doesn't know who's telling the truth and who's not. So so let's kind of sort it out together. Let's have the inquiry. Let's have the media cover it. Let's have an honest and objective, um, you know, uh, search for the truth. But, but, but to argue that there's not evidence... It's just untrue. I mean, that, that's dishonest. There is evidence. It's compelling evidence. Some of the evidence has been corroborated. Some of the evidence has been substantiated. We know there are LLCs. We know that Biden's grandkid got wired money. I mean, we know that to be true. Now, it's hard to find stories about that because the media's done what? It's almost like, why did the White House waste the email telling the media how to cover the story? The media's already proven they know how to cover the story, and that's by not covering it. I told you two weeks ago, you've asked me, why aren't we doing as much about the Biden corruption scandal? There's no news. 
I mean, there's nothing out there except Town Hall and Breitbart and, you know, Zero Hedge and some of the conservatives. There's nobody out there in mainstream media talking about this. I mean, it's, it's a bombshell. I mean, it's one of the biggest stories in American history. But nobody's talking about it. It's one hand clapping. And, and, and maybe the impeachment inquiry will force. I mean, if I'm a member of the media, if I'm John Decker, and I've been there a while, and I have somewhat of a reputation on being fair-minded, and I get an email from the White House saying, hey, here's how we think you should cover this story. You know what I do? I, I try to get access to that person, and I say, who do you think you are? But I mean, it's not your job. I mean, I understand spin. I, I get it. I understand a communications director's job is to tell the best story he can. But, but he sent that to the media directing them on how he suggests they cover the story. If you're a media member of any degree of seriousness, you, you got to be, you got to be, wow, you got to be insulted by that. So, so I go back to Jeff's point. Well, and Decker called it Bush League. Yeah, he I did. Mean, he, Becker, he, did De- he was critical. Decker called it Bush League. Let's give him a little credit. John Decker said it was a Bush League act as far as I'm concerned. But once again, if somebody's in your pocket, why not try to put them deeper in your pocket? I mean, if they've proven to be kind of a shield, then let's see how big a shield they'll be. Will they run interference for an impeachment inquiry or not? I mean, that, you know, Ian Smalls is saying, I think they will. And, and in fact, here's how I think we should direct them on, on what to do and say. But I want to go back to, I mean, we, we know that the White House has changed its, its talking point. I mean, there, there, are, there is archived video after archived video of KJP saying, never discuss business. Hundreds of times. And then it moved. When Comer had his hearing and Comer revealed some things they'd found out, and there were bank records, there were wire transfers, there were shell companies, you don't make that up. Then all of a sudden, it became never in business with his son. And now that we've had an impeachment inquiry, there is no evidence to link President Biden to his son. I could care less what Hunter Biden's done. I mean, it's a human tragedy, right? I mean, it really and truly is. I mean, if you're a, a sympathetic human being, you feel a little sympathy for a man who allowed his life to become such a train wreck. I do. I mean, I'll level with you. Uh, a parent of a kid um, who had some issues. It's heartbreaking to watch the person you love struggle. So I got to believe that Joe Biden hurt for his son when, when he saw his son's life get so out of whack, you know, um, addicted and... And, you know, um, I mean, obviously with prostitutes and all these other sorts of things. Um, but I'm not interested in that. That's a human tragedy at a humanist, humanistic level. What I'm interested in, and, and to be honest with you, I'm not that interested in Hunter Biden getting paid. I mean, that smells bad, but it's not illegal. I mean, a lot of kids, of famous politicians have gotten paid in ways they don't deserve. What I'm, but it's not illegal. What, what I'm concerned of is, did Joe Biden in any way, shape, or form enjoy the financial benefit of his son getting paid by foreign agents? That's what I'm interested in, and we don't know. We don't know that. Now, now once again, if I'm a betting man and we have a fair-minded process, he's going to be found guilty. I mean, there's no doubt about it because, once again, three business partners under oath. In one corner, okay, let's do this. Ready to rumble? In this corner, <laughs> you've got Hunter and Joe Biden. In this other corner, you've got three business partners. You've got an FBI informant. you got RS whistleblower, FBI whistleblower, bank records, 
shell companies, wire transfers, emails, text, Art Vandelay. I mean, they're all in this corner. Who do you believe is telling the truth? The Bidens or all of these other folks who say that Joe Biden's not telling you the truth? He did benefit. Um, I, I, would, I would offer up this, Rev. I don't know how you impeach the DOJ, but I think they're as corrupt in this process as Biden is. I mean, I think David Weiss is as tainted as any person who has ever worked for the DOJ is. I mean, I think what David Weiss did, and, and, and God bless the judge, who said, I can't sign off on this. I mean, there, there's no adversarial relationship between the prosecution and defense. I mean, you guys cooked the books and want me to bless it. I can't do this. But because judges, at times, will understand their responsibilities to maintain integrity to the courtroom. And, and when given the opportunity to say yay or nay, she said, I can't sign off on this. I mean, there's no way I can. It's obvious what happened here. I mean, this guy was getting given treatment unlike anybody else would have ever been given, and I can't sign off on that. And now I believe that David Weiss is trying to kind of dangle a shiny object. We're going to indict Hunter Biden on, on gun charges. You know what my response to that is? So? So? I want to know, how did Joe Biden get rich? And I think if we go down that road of trying to better understand how Joe Biden got wealthy, the, the answers, that the, the, the questions that remain unanswered, we can fill in the blanks. There will be a lot of blank filling in if we indeed, you know, genuinely and, and curiosity is the driver of trying to find out what the truth is. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, I want to talk about the old people and the power boys. How many years? They, I think they got 125 years all together, right? I think so they that, did. That, so that wasn't a riot. That wasn't a riot. They tried to overthrow the government. Now all Jake Smith got to do is get the head of the cut the head of the snake off, and I'm betting my last penny on it. And anybody who votes for Trump is a vote for Putin. Is a vote for Putin. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. You know, um, <laughs> I saw Sean Penn yesterday. Sean Penn put something on Twitter, and he said, he was talking about a vote for Trump. I mean, Williams went down there and read a vote for Trump. He said a vote for Trump was embarrassing, um, unpatriotic, and he even added unloving of your child. <laughs> oh, so, so I put a, a Spicoli. I mean, Spicoli, <laughs> you know, rolling with, with kind of, a, you know, Spicoli says a vote for Trump means you don't love your kid. Um, Spicoli loves kids. Yeah, uh, pizza and Professor Han, or you know, Mister <laughs> Han. Remember the scene in Fast oh, yeah. Times at Richmond High. Uh, Sean Penn is a is a is a nut. I mean, he's a full blown nut, and um, anything he says should be taken as if it came from a full blown um, nut. But anyway, everybody's got an opinion. Williams got an opinion. The interesting part of the um, the cumulative sentence of those who were responsible for January six is one guy got twenty two years and wasn't even there. <laughs> right. I mean, imagine had he been there. What does he get? The electric chair? <laughs> I mean, he gets 22 years and he's not even on site. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about a powerful, I mean, that, that's the, you know, that's Jim Jones convinced all those people to drink that Kool-Aid, you know, and died in mass. I mean, imagine this guy must have Jim Jones, David Koresh sorts of power if he could direct an overthrowing of the government and not even be on the premise. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, David. 
Hey, man, that Phoebe Cakes was super cute now, buddy. Talking about fast times. Did somebody just I don't know about cute. Deal. Cute doesn't come to mind for me, David. I mean, it was. Well, you know, I, I don't want to get involved in this. Kittens we are cute. Do that. Save that for a podcast show. Okay, we can get involved in that and Christy Nome and this and that. Did somebody just call this tell about Joe Biden a book deal? Did the man say a book deal? Joe Biden's got rich off of a book deal. You know, when I think of political book deals, you know, I think Mark Twain back in the day got with uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Grant was kind of suffering. He had cancer. He's trying to make money. Grant had a life before politics. So a lot of that went into that life. But how does Bernie Sanders make money? What book deals? You're going to use that as an excuse, a book deal. Ken, me and you could do a better book deal than these people. I hate to say it like that, but. Anyway, to shell companies, whatever you're talking about, wire transfers, phony names, uh, whatever, these public servants getting rich. You said David Ignatius. Well, that's another day in D.C. to him, and he writes books. So that's another book deal. But, hey, let's talk about something important. Did you watch Dave's Braves last night? I did not. I did. You did not. Dave, I'm sure you watched them, right? Yeah. Yep. They, they won the chance. I tell you. They, now, cl- now, they clinched the credit. division, right? They clinched the division. I'm going to give you credit. Uh, Ken, you're talking about them Phillies now. They're young, hairy, scrappy, and they're streaky. So somewhere along the line, they might meet in one of these three out of five game series. But I'm telling you, man, the Braves have set so many records. I was thinking about Acuna. He's only 25 years old. That's that's the beauty of that cat. Um, and I think here's a record he broke the other night. I think he got the most runs for the Atlanta Braves. No, I'm Fortunately, in a way, Atlanta goes all the way back to the Boston Braves, and there was a team called the Boston Bean Eaters. Anyway, there was a guy back then that set a lot of the, the franchise records. But question for Ken Snicker, when these next 16 games, do you turn Acuna loose to try to break these records? Because uh, you know, he and Olsen, they had 162 games last year. Or do you try to rest these guys? I mean – for the playoffs strategy there. And I'll say something about Olsen too. He's got a, obviously he's already tied the home run record. I think he's got a chance to break the Atlanta Braves uh, RBI record. But I think about that in modern society, do you arrest people or you let them go to work? Let's go to work. So anyway, I want to hear your comments. Thank you, David. Appreciate yeah, that. How, how does that play into like Acuna if they start resting him and he, and he's a certainly a candidate for MVP um, how does that affect that consideration? But I mean, what? Don't rest him. Baseball players are built to play baseball, but that's his God-given talent. I mean, obviously he's honed that talent. He's worked hard at that talent, but I've just never bought into, I mean, I don't say, you know, give him a day off. Let, let's say they play, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday have Monday off. Give him Tuesday. You know, let, let him have a back-to-back day off. But but I just I don't I've never bought into that. You play you pay the guy to play baseball. Let him play baseball. I, I just think very oh, yeah, often. I agree. And, and this is in general. I mean, this is life in general. I'm not a philosopher by any stretch, but very often we outthink ourselves. I mean, I, I'm I'm more guilty of that than anybody. I I'm, I'm certainly not the one to. I mean, you talking about the pot calling the kettle black? I mean, that that would be to an extreme. Me saying don't overthink things. Ronald Acuna is a young guy who's very good at baseball. So why not let a young guy very good at baseball play baseball? (laughs) 
I mean, I, I'm not opposed, Rev, as I said, you know, um, a road trip, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three-game set. You're off on Monday. You come back home to play on a Tuesday. Give him that Tuesday off. But get him back in there Wednesday. Don't, don't give some extended period of time. Now, now pitchers would be different. The, the only thing that, the, you know, the only person that should be tired by now is the throwing arm of the pitcher. I mean, I understand resting there. But, but other than that, I mean, the game of baseball is not that strenuous. I mean, it's physical. And, and I guess the 162 season is a grind. Football's different. I mean, go go to one, go go to a baseball locker room. And I played both sports, not at that level by any stretch. But I can tell you this: after a baseball game, I was ready to do whatever needed to be done. After a football game, I'm kind of ready to go home. You know what I mean? The body just gets beaten up, and um, so, so you know, baseball is just. I mean, it's a hard sport. It's probably harder to play than than football is, but it's not as bad on the body. It doesn't beat the body up. Um, football games beat the body up and it needs a period of time to recover and, you know, treatment and, and training and all these other sorts of things. I, I just think very often we, we outthink ourselves. So if I'm, you know, in control of the Atlanta Braves, all I want to know is how many, how many pitches has he thrown with his throwing arm and can we shut him down for a start or two to give him some rest and get that arm back in in good standing. Other than that, I mean, they're, 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 they're by and large young guys, right? They're healthy, fit young guys. They, they play a game. They bat four or five times, uh, you know, a night. A pitching arm should be the only thing I would think about kind of resting. But but I, I go back, and this is the concern Rev has, and I do as well as a Braves fan. The Re- I mean, I don't know the Braves are a great team, but they've had a great season. I mean, they've had a just an absolute phenomenal, one of the best seasons the Braves have ever had. And they are a team that is a lot of fun to watch because they hit a bunch of home runs. People like home runs. I mean, that's action, excitement, <laughs> scoring runs. Um, but but it's still that seven-game series. <laughs> it's still that, you know, everything you've done in the regular season means very little. I mean, it means a home field advantage. That's kind of what – and you don't have to play in a wild card uh, series. But other than that, you know, winning 103 or four or five games like they probably will – when, when you when you suit it up with the Phillies or whomever they encounter the playoffs, guess what? It's zero, zero, and everything in the rearview mirror means nothing. Just that. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. Yeah, good morning, fellas. Um, all I got to say is that what's really making the Democratic Party nervous, not Biden, because I don't know when election time is coming or not, but that party is nervous because of one person and that's Cornell West. They're keeping him off the media, off the news. And whenever he is on the CNN or whatever, uh, they're trying to get him to join the Democratic Party and don't be a spoiler and don't take the votes from uh, Joe Biden. Cornell West is the best candidate in the race right now for if you are about truth and justice. Now, if you want to hold your nose and vote for somebody else, but he is the best candidate. But the Democratic Party and the media trying their hardest to keep him out of the main light of everybody knowing that he is running with the Green Party on um, the People's Party. And, Anthony, I'll tell do, you something, and I, and I don't want to interrupt y'all as you finish, but, but I'll tell you, Anthony, I mean, Cornell West sounds a lot like an America Firster. I mean, he really, I mean, yeah. he doesn't say it as bombastically as Trump does, but, but the things he says align a lot with the America First agenda. Yeah, and they're trying their hardest not to put him on any kind of public nuke. A lot of my people, because I have a podcast, a lot of them don't even know that he's running for president. You know what I'm saying? Because the, the the media 
is hiding him because they know that he would take so many black, brown votes from, from um, Joe Biden. Because, I mean, we don't want to vote for him anyway, but, you know, and he is the best candidate, left or right, but they hiding him because they know that if we vote for him, they have to bring back some kind of virus again to get the numbers, to be able to explain why, he, why Biden won again. If Cornel West run again, run and be successful, we will have another virus so they will have mail-in votes. All right, so that's all I got to say. Thank you, Anthony. Did Anthony give me an F-minus or F-plus last week or earlier this I week? I thought he said F-plus. Okay. I thought it was an F-minus. Uh, I think Anthony and I are back in good standing now. <laughs> uh, take a break. Hey, let's do this. Maybe not today, but how many of you have ever heard Cornell West speak? It's interesting. It's interesting. I've always found him interesting. Real quick, Cornell West story. I'm at the diner in New York City. You know the um, the Seinfeld when they take a picture of the diner mm-hmm. outside, sure, and it's you know got diner. I, I'm you know we've gone there a couple of times when we go to New York, and Cornell West is sitting at the bar. Because it's across the street, I think, from no Columbia way. University, and he's a professor at, at Columbia. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. No longer representing your or constituents to the, you know, to the fullest amount you can, then there should be ability for the people to have a special election and, and, and get somebody else in there. That's, that's far too abstract. You can't do that. I mean, it, it, you, uh, there's, I mean, the word I use, real technical word, squishy. I mean, who says you're not representing your constituency? I mean, if you're a liberal, you think Joe Biden's doing just fine. If you're a conservative, you think he sucks. Uh, what percentage of the constituency? I, I think there, there, there's going to come a time sooner than later when the American voters are forced to consider an age limit. Uh, we got an age limit for someone to run for president. We got an age limit for someone to be eligible to vote for a president. Why shouldn't we have a finish line? I mean, why should we? I understand the uh, the power of the ballot box, and you know, you've got a chance every two, four, or six years to vote this older person out of office. But we've kind of agreed they stack the deck in so favor of career politicians, big business, big government. That um, I mean, the the, the insanity of making an argument that incumbents don't have a distinct advantage is just that. I mean, it's an insane argument, both Republican and Democrat. And I am a believer. I mean, if we can't get term limits, let's get age limits. The founders never intended you to go to Washington and make a career of public service. It becomes a job and a career. And if it's a job and a career, it ain't public service. It's a job and a career. Yes. I don't know how many people have seen the story where Joe Biden has claimed that his administration has ended cancer as we know it. I've been battling cancer for 16 years now, and that is the stupidest remark I have ever heard anyone make in my life. The the only thing I'll say to that is I am for government-funded research at some of the, um, the elite universities that are genuinely dedicated to medical research. I am for that. I mean, I'm small government. I'm I'm for you know a little better model of formally educating higher education. I mean, in other words, I, I think colleges some do good, some not so not so good. But I'm a supporter of some amount of taxpayer dollars funding research in some of these major. And now you got to earn it. I'm talking about some of the um some of the universities and the medical schools who have a great track record. 
of, of trying to pursue cures and pursue advancements. Um, but, but to believe, I mean, if you believed, I mean, if anybody believed that when Joe Biden said, you know, on my watch, we're going to cure cancer, uh, that, that's just absurd. I mean, serious people can't believe some of those nonsensical things that not just Joe Biden, but politicians in general say, but as a small government Republican, somewhat libertarian, very much Jeffersonian, I am for a, a certain amount of taxpayer dollars funding some level of research in universities that have earned a right to be funded and are genuinely interested in pursuing cures and medical advancements. This concerns Tucker's interview uh, with a white dude, as you call him, concerning Barack Obama. Now we all know why Chris Matthews had this feeling running up his leg when Barack Obama was running for president. <laughs> I, I don't have any idea. I mean, you can believe the guy or not. Most people that I've talked to that have watched the interview don't believe it. That they, they believe the guy has some inability to decipher reality from what he thinks is true. A little bit like Biden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's got these these um, these braces on his arms. You know, it's just I, once again, uh, I believe Tucker's strategy is anything goes. I mean, if we're really gonna have no holes barred, if you're going to indict a president with a racist, politically motivated prosecutor in a place that you know he's not going to get a fair trial. I'm going to bring a guy on that said he had drug-induced sex with Barack Obama at the back of a limousine uh, in Chicago. Why not? I mean, if, if, if nothing is off limits, then nothing is off limits. And I sincerely believe that that's Tucker's strategy. You know, you, you, want, you want to throw grenades? Be careful. There'll be grenades thrown back um, your way. And in essence, isn't that kind of what we've argued that our side has not been willing to do? And I hate to say our side and their side, but in all honesty, that's kind of where we are. Um, you got one side that believes one thing, another side that believes another thing. One side has been willing to do whatever it took to win. Uh, some on our side believe we've not quite been committed to that. And I think Tucker says, well, it's time. You know, one indictment deserves uh, one flamboyant story. I don't know if the guy's telling the truth or not. I don't have any idea. Um, some of the comments are interesting after Tucker put it on Twitter, and I'm going down through, through some of the – I mean, it's uh, – People are colorful, shall I say. <laughs> so we still play in our respects to Jimmy Buffett? There you go. Is that kind of what that is? He's in rotation. Have we decided where he lands in the pantheon of all-time greats? Uh, we Well, we haven't decided that. Have I don't we, think we've I mean, we, given we've opinions. We've had multiple discussions about his music. I mean, you, you called him a misfit. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really know where to put him. Is he pop? Is he rock? Is he country? Is he folk? Yeah. 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 Kind of sort of, of a, little, a little of all that. Right. But have we... um. Have we decided? I mean, he's obviously not Mount Rushmore, right? Right. What? What? So, so is he on the second team, third team, or is he not even on the team at all? In uh, all-time greats, I think he's got to be there. I think because he's so unique and he was such a mix of different styles and and really kind of his own style that he probably gets an honorable mention for that. I think more people got drunk to his music than anybody in the history of mankind. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I just, I just think he would probably hold that honor. Um, the deadheads would be people who have gotten high on their music more mm -hmm. than anybody. But I think Buffett's probably, I do think he deserves not Mount Rushmore consideration, but he does deserve 
second team, he's better than honorable mention. Okay. Because of his uniqueness, Rev. I mean, he's country music fans like Buffett. Well, Rock and I, roll fans like Buck, Buffett. Pop music fans like Buffett. I gave him honorable mention because he's unique. And okay. I don't take anything away from it at all. But he, he sold $20 million, which is a pretty good number in anybody's book, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not reaching the, you know, hundred plus million of the, of the top level people of Beatles and Garth Brooks. And but he created, okay. Who else created a lifestyle? See, that's why he gets extra credit. Cause Margaritaville is kind yeah. of a lifestyle. You would agree to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, let's get serious for a second. We don't ever do this, but let's try. <laughs> okay. Um, McLeod health has been a partner. Um, and we've been careful to make sure we don't embarrass McLeod Health, because we do some nonconformity here on our radio show. But but they, they're genuinely, they know how committed we are to the community. And thankfully, they've been a partner in our commitment to the community. And at times, we get serious. And today is one of the times um, we're talking about with um, Lauren Snipes, the 24th annual, you ready? An Evening of Hope benefit, the McLeod Hope Fund. A lot of hopes there. Um, but when you're talking about cancer, hope is a big, big deal. Lauren, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. Thank so, you. So explain to us um, why McLeod is involved and what we hope to accomplish um, in the treatment of cancer, the research of cancer, and how this community can mobilize and be supportive. Well, I will tell you just some backstory. So about 10 years ago, we began our HOPE Fund. That stands for Helping Oncology Patients Every Day. Um we realize that we do serve a very vulnerable population in rural area, and with that comes a lot of financial challenges. Um, when you get cancer, you're usually not planning on getting cancer, and for the average person, that takes a, a very substantial financial toll on them. And so um, the Hope Fund really exists to bridge the gap for those financial issues, things like transportation, medication assistance, other immediate needs um, that come up with patients. We want patients to be able to really concentrate on um, getting better and healing from their cancer. We have excellent physicians who um, really are top-notch and provide that wonderful care in treating the diagnosis, but we want to treat the whole patient. We want to be able to help with those emotional and financial issues that arise. Um, So we are very committed to this fund. Um, This is the 10th year of hope, or almost the 10th year of hope, the 9th year of hope, and the 24th annual Evening of Hope. And all proceeds from this special event go directly to that fund. And this is the primary fundraiser? Yes, I, mean, I, I don't want to say it's a make or break, but this is a big deal in your world, yes. trying to meet your obligations and responsibilities financially. Sure, it is. It is. And um, as well as just getting out the message of hope in our community and um, really informing people that this fund exists. A lot of people don't realize that it even exists. So it's it's a big deal for us. Very few people listening to our voice have not been touched in some way by cancer. Yeah. Um, uh, thankfully, I've not been directly, but but indirectly. And, and I understand the concern and, and the, uh, you know, the circumstances it brings about when someone is diagnosed with cancer. If somebody out there is listening and they've been touched by cancer or not, but they want to be supportive, how do we do that? I mean, a lot of people know about this. You've got a great list of sponsors here, sure. but, but a lot of people don't know. And they may want to participate. They may want to take it. They may want to financially support. Walk us through how they can support what you're trying to do. Okay. So um, first, if you want to participate as an attendee, you can purchase tickets on our website, um, mccloudfoundation.org. You can also sign up to be a sponsor there as well and attend um, the actual Evening of Hope. But otherwise, um, like I mentioned, 
you know, the need is really great um, and truly greater than ever. I say that every year, the need is greater than ever. But um, after going through a pandemic, after going through all of these financial ups and downs um, in our world, people really are desperate for help. Um, And so really throughout the year, you know, we have um, wonderful donors in our community, organizations who um, support us with funding that is critical. Um, But addition, you know, we have a wonderful cancer center. Um, We have a volunteer program that people can kind of become a part of. Um, We do take donations, um, you know, to give to patients while they're in the cancer center as well. So there's lots of different ways. um, And I'd be happy to talk to anyone who wants to become more involved with us. Okay, what is the not like? Uh, we're talking about Jimmy Buffett a second ago. Sure. If you go to a Buffett concert, you kind of know what you're getting when you go to a Buffett concert. Sure. For someone who wants to be, be, be an attendee sure. of this event, it's at the Performing yeah. Arts Center. Yes. It's on September 21st yes. at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, walk us through logistically what happens that night. Okay. So um, it begins at 6 p.m. We have a strolling reception um, and a silent auction. And then about 7.30 or so, we will all go into our Performing Arts Center auditorium and be entertained by Fran Coleman and the Empire Band. Um, And they will um, entertain us. But really more than that, we have five survivors that we feature. Um, It really is a special evening. We have five survivors that tell their story. Um, They were treated at McLeod. They tell their story of how, um, how they got through it. Um, Some of them were helped by our Hope Fund, and so they share that as well. But it is truly an inspiring and touching evening, Um, especially if you have been, like you mentioned, touched by cancer in some way, shape, or form. Um, You don't really get it until you go through it. Uh, Okay, and once again, if someone is interested in knowing more or being financially supportive, they can get in touch with you how? Yes, so you can call our McLeod Foundation office. Um, You can look us up on the website. All of my information is there on mcleodfoundation.org. Um, but I'm happy to talk with anyone and, and plugging someone in to figure out how they can support. And this is not all about the rich and famous. I mean, cancer no. knows no socioeconomic bounds. People yeah. have been touched in, 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 right. in crazy ways. Um, tickets are for sale yes. if you want to be an attendee. Yes. Uh, but, but once again, all that information is made available on the website. It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, yesterday Mitt Romney announced he's not running for re-election. This will be a wrap-up on this morning's um, show the, the, the well, I mean, I, I'm a subscriber to the National Review, Weekly Standard, New York. I mean, anyway, uh, it comes with the turf. It's part of my job. Romney was the most antagonistic senator toward Donald Trump in the Senate. I mean, he let it be known. He didn't like Trump, thought he was a cancer on the system. I mean, he's not a statesman, not dignified. Um, some of that Mormon. Uh, anyway, um, I got to give credit to Carl Rove. You're talking about somebody who is steadfastly trying to get a square peg into a round hole. It is, it is Carl How, Rowe. How's that? Well, I mean, here you go. You ready? I t- go to the Wall Street Journal. I read this yesterday. Trump lost a debate by not showing up. I mean, how did Trump lose a debate by not showing up? Rove is hell-bent on making sure neoconservatism carries the day. Hmm. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like I want to send Carl Rove a card. I met Carl Rove when I was lieutenant governor at a function and, and a very uh, approachable um, very, you know, I mean, just, just a normal dude when you got to, to meet him a little bit, K- kind of a political strategist extraordinaire. I mean, gained a lot of attention on Fox with a whiteboard, you know, talking about the counties and he knows that up one side and down the other. Kahaley like in that regard. I mean, I don't know the counties and the, and the voting totals. I mean, you know, Rove would say, 
I mean, he's got to get 300,000 votes out of this county or, you know what I mean? That, that's the strategist. I mean, that's the guy that knows if we don't get 300,000 votes out of this county in Pennsylvania, uh, we're just not winning. I mean, we, we just, that, that's our number and we got to hit it or not. But he has been as committed to stopping Trump from being the nominee as he was getting America involved in Iraq. I mean, it, it really and truly. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I applaud the persistence. I mean, I really do. And I, and I guess in the weirdest way imaginable, the Wall Street Journal finds him relevant. And, and, and some people care what Karl Rove um, has to say. But, yeah, Trump lost the debate by not showing up. And he just, I don't know if he's genuinely, here's what I don't know. Is Rove, he's going down with a ship. So there's some honor there. But who's keeping Rove employed? I mean, who's paying his bills? I mean, he's made a lot of money in politics, no question about it. And he's gained a level of notoriety or degree of notoriety. But at some point in time, you got to give it up and, and say, hey, there's a life raft over here. Uh, or I'm going to drown with the, with a Titanic, and it seems to me that Rove is, and I don't know if he's genuine or not. I don't. Carl Rove is not crazy. He's not dumb or stupid. Carl Rove is a very smart and shrewd politico, and he stays in that lane. And you, and you wonder who's paying him to stay in that lane. I mean, who who's continuing to keep him? I mean, because once again, he's still a relevant voice, and he's been wrong about everything. <laughs> Nobody's been wrong about everything that has happened in the consistent. Republican Party since 2016, and I guess that's what I'm applauding him for. I mean, he's, he's been consistent. But if you believe he's getting paid, well, I mean, he's, he's got to be why. getting paid, Rev. I mean, somebody in the military-industrial complex has to be kind of greasing the skid with Carl Rove to keep him on the, uh, you know, the commentary opinion section of the Wall Street Journal. I've not read this. I'll read it today. And we'll probably opine on what Karl Rove has to say about Donald Trump. I mean, at some point in time, you got to admit it's not my party. And if the party changes, I can change with the party or leave the party. But, but to try and just continue to force that square peg into that round hole, that's got to be miserable. And I believe Rove <laughs> may, may be self-medicating himself out of the, <laughs> out of the misery that is Donald Trump. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.